Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 111 of Through the Years, the podcast reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dane, joined as always by the co-host Matt Feuerstein and a returning guest from the other great Ring of Honor podcast, an honorable mention, one half of that. You've heard him before on this show. He is back covering yet again a Cleveland show, Jeff Schwartz. I understand it is a hot day in Ohio, and we are back covering another hot day in Ohio, as we'll, we'll quickly get to in the notes. Yeah, you know what? That's a, a wonderful introduction, because I remember this show being just absolutely miserably hot uh, back at Generation Now. But thank you guys for having me on again uh, as the king of Cleveland, uh, <laughs> the real king of Cleveland, um, not the one that was swept out of the NBA Western Conference Finals. Um, oh, yeah, Jeff, I was going to ask you about how you feel about your arch nemesis being swept. Uh, well, the truth be told, I am very directly connected to the Denver Nuggets in several ways. Uh, so them defeating LeBron and the Lakers was uh, a very, very happy family moment, not just for me personally, but my Uncle Bill, my Aunt Beth, my cousin Alex, and my cousin Jackson are all Denver natives. And um, it was super important for me knowing how many years of just awful basketball they've experienced and the loss of players like Carmelo Anthony and Dikembe Mutombo uh, for them to get to experience in NBA finals um, and to be able to go to the games in the NBA finals, which they're going to be doing. So uh, I'm thrilled. Denver's a great city. Um, I had a friend that used to coach the Canton Charge, the Cavs minor league team that was on the coaching staff last season and had a role in developing some of the young guys on the Nuggets this year. Jordy Fernandez, he's with the Kings now. Uh, he actually may be coming to the Toronto Raptors as head coach, uh, if you listen to the internet scuttlebutt. But I'm very excited. Uh, I hope LeBron enjoys his offseason, embraces time with his sons and his daughter and his wife, and I wish him the best of luck on vacation. So, yeah, and, and in case anybody is listening to this in five years, this is June 2023 that we're recording this. Um, so that puts us – it, it'll take you right back to, to those heady days of June 2023 when the, the Nuggets finally got to the NBA Finals. Um, so that is exciting times. My favorite part of basketball is when they throw the ball and it goes in the hoop. I like, so, when, um, I like when they miss. <laughs> well, it, it we'll makes me. Tonight. It makes it makes me. It makes me more. Makes it makes it feel more relatable to me. You know what I mean? This, oh, is, this is the epitome of go sports. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see um, if tonight's show that we're covering goes in the hoop or is it a miss? With a uh, generation now is the show we are covering tonight. It's the second half of the double shot we started on the last episode. Generation now took place. July 29th, 2006, at the Cleveland Grays Armory in Cleveland, Ohio, in front of a reported crowd of 500 fans, although that may be disputed because we got an email from listener Ronnie LaFollette. Hopefully this time I got it right. Um, he wrote, the pro wrestling fandom wiki site lists the attendance as 500, but I really don't think that's accurate. I only remember there being like 200 to 300 fans, although I may be getting it confused with the second event in Cleveland that I attended a few years later, which had Nigel McGinnis versus El Generico on top. 
I have no idea what the intent is. I always just go by the observer, so at least we're consistent with ourselves. The observer also said 500. I know they're not. Cleveland is not going to be a regular stop really going forward, so did, I have to did, imagine. Did there, there was one more show in Cleveland after this in 2006, or am I wrong? Yeah. Uh, I think it was 2007 was the last one uh, and the one after this. Uh, Rhett got busted open really, really bad by Delirious. Uh, it was when he was the gimp, Age of the Fall. Uh, insanity unleashed or something insanity. Uh, but it would have been the next year. Gotcha. Yeah, this, this, at least, I mean, on video, this crowd didn't seem notably smaller than the previous one. Yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't obvious that it was a small crowd if that was, if that's the case. But, I wouldn't um, even go as far as to say this show was double attendance wise what the final show in cleveland was insanity unleashed or whatever and of course it would not be as we covered on the very last show the same thing in a different city in ohio it would not be a uh, podcast that covers independent wrestling shows that happened in the summer if you didn't get copious notes about how hot the building was because when i was doing research from this i got not one but two lot it seems like this was that one of the main things every fan that came to the show and filed a report was coming away with was how hot this building was uh jeff you just mentioned it so first we'll go to uh, PW Torch, someone wrote in a live report to them at the time, uh, Rick Carnahan, and he wrote, The four ceiling fans above the ring did very little to cool down the building, but the sweltering heat couldn't stop 500 rabid fans. But the better live report note on this would be um, PW Insider, a fan, had wrote into them, Mark Engelson, and he wrote, The building wasn't air-conditioned. You could smell the excitement quite literally last night. So, uh, Jeff, any thoughts, any memories of the smells of this this show? Let's just say the Gray's Armory was not known for its ventilation. (laughs) Um, It was, it was, uh, it was not great. Um, I'm going to be kind and favorable to the Cleveland fans that were there. Um, it was not a pleasant smelling yeah. experience. I mean, I'm not here to dunk on fans, but especially if you're going into a summer show fans, you know, shower the day of put on some nice deodorant, you know, treat yourselves, you know, cedar pine with a lot of good sense. Just go for it. But uh, it also doesn't seem like there was a great electrical system there because the lights kept oh, flickering. Yeah. All night long. Yep. They are really lucky that they stayed on, honestly. Yeah, yeah we'll, um, and that building we'll is so old that the fact they even had electricity was surprising. And a working toilet, one working <laughs> toilet. Again, indie, indie wrestling. Ring of Honor was like the the most prominent U.S. Indie Wrestling Federation. It was still an indie wrestling place. This is the places you run, but ceiling fans and bad wiring. But... Um, the other note Mark Engelson had, which is just a nice little note. It's nice to hear when people are nice. He wrote, before the show, BJ Whitmer was signing autographs and talking to the fans, not selling photos or anything, just signing stuff for the fans. Nice guy. It's funny to think, you know, the night before he was in like this brutal death match, barbed wire, getting cut up, getting his hair cut, all these bumps. And then you could see him like less than 24 hours later in front of, you know, the building before the show, just like, hey, everybody, like, 
of course I'll sign this eight by 10. Like, again, that's part of the fun of indie wrestling is how close you are to the fans where like you or the wrestlers where you can see them doing something crazy. And then like literally have a conversation with them sometimes like half an hour later intermission. And on the next episode, Trevor, I will have my favorite story involving something like that, but I'll save that for a time to man up. Oh boy. That's going to be great. Um, I can only imagine. (laughs) And then finally, we have a note from Dave Meltzer's live report in The Observer. He wrote, reports about both shows on the weekend. He goes, reports where just about every match on both shows was good, but but not super matches or anything like that. With the star match of the weekend being Danielson's Ring of Honor title defense against Nigel McGuinness in Cleveland. We will be the judge of that by the end of the night. So finally, we get to uh, two pre-show matches. They did not air on the DVD, but I did find the results from them. Alex Payne, Rhett Titus, and Bobby Dempsey defeated Trick Davis, CJ Otis, and Pele Primo in a pre-show six-man tag. And then, Jeff, uh, some guy you kind of know, um, Shane Hagedorn defeated Egotistico Fantastico in your pre-show main event. So Shane defend, repping that uh, top-of-the-class trophy, and that brings us to the opening segment. We open with Samoa Joe at a gym somewhere. Gabe Sapolsky later, when he jumps on commentary for a second, will say it's from uh, Samoa Joe's home gym in California. If that's true, pretty nice looking home gym. Um, Joe is pumping sure iron. sure the LA dojo. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I thought. You know, you know, he, the way Gabe saw it, he said his home, I believe. And I was like, if, if that's his home, Joe's doing pretty well for himself. But yeah, yeah, I suspected, but I'm glad we got some clarification. Um, uh, Anyway, either way, wherever Joe is, he's pumping iron. He's lifting weights. Uh, Joe says Brian Danielson thinks that his, you know, Joe's knee is weak. Brian thinks he's found a chink in Joe's armor. Joe says tonight Danielson's taking on Nigel McGinnis, and he'll be keeping an eye on that. He goes, as for my knee, uh, he says to come back later, and he'll show you just how weak his knee is. So, yeah, we'll be seeing a few of these little Joe promos throughout the night, and this was the rare for the era double shot that Joe did not work at all. So, trying to get that Joe press is trying to continue to build up the upcoming Brian Danielson match by having him send in some promos, which, you know, it's good. It's what you can do. It's good. I don't know if you guys there's, have any thoughts. A, about this. I'll, I'll throw one crazy stat out. This was the first show. Uh, well, second show, but first weekend of shows uh, that I was at that Joe was not on. Yeah. Uh, so this is like the first ring of honor show weekend with no Samoa Joe and it was like a giant void. Yeah, it is so weird to not to this day it's something I still talk about um with my friends that I went to the show with. Not having Joe there, it was it was it was just like you can't replace it was the realization you cannot replace it. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, we'll be getting to the point in 2007 where they're going to have to. But right now, we'll yep. we'll get it. We'll get them down next show. But uh, next, we go to Nigel McGuinness backstage in the Gray's Armory. He points out that he's been the pure champion for a year now. He says, "Last time we were here, I beat Brian Danielson fair and square. And the only reason Brian kept his title is he took a cheap countout to hold on to it." He said, "Funny, obviously, the irony of Nigel talking about cheap countouts." Nigel says, tonight, there will be no countouts. There's not going to be pure title rules. It's for the world title with traditional rules. And Nigel says, tonight, he's going to unify the world and pure title. So, very simple promo kind of building up for the main event tonight. And that brings us to the opening match of the show. Uh, Delirious 
defeats Claudio Castagnoli via pinfall in 11 minutes, 43 seconds after he used a roll-up. Matt, uh, here, I mean, here we go. It's a pretty standard opener in terms of there's no real storyline. It's just kind of, hey, let's have a match. These guys are on the weekend. What did you think about it? Yeah, I was happy that Claudio had a chance to do a wrestling match after being part of so many brawls for so many months. Um, I think the last like wrestling match, wrestling match that we got to see him have was the match against uh, Joe in the last uh, Ohio run. And, you know, that, though that was bad. <laughs> um, so this was a lot better than that. Um, but the, you know, overall it was mostly a fairly solid, straightforward baby face heel structure, you know, well wrestled, not super memorable, except a couple things. So the first was just kind of the examples of Delirious's quote unquote unorthodox style, like when Claudio gets Delirious in a waist lock and Delirio puts his hand in his mouth in order to wet it to slide it through Claudio's arms and it works. And then another time where Delirious does like an upside down worm kind of when he's in a side headlock on the ground. Um, you know, just, uh, Delirious being unorthodox. The other really, really, really memorable thing for me in this match was that Claudio does a one-legged giant swing, and then he holds on to the leg at the end and turns it into a, a half-crab. That's like a low-key incredible spot. Can you – I mean, does the Lord – am I crazy? Does Claudio do that a lot, one-legged giant swing? Is that something that you've noticed him be, him doing uh, recently? I haven't. Uh I, I, not recently. I imagine Nigel, I mean, Claudio's probably done so many giant swings. He's probably done the variation occasionally, but no, this is not like, it's I not, do a, not, it's think not like, a normal he, thing that he pulls out. I wouldn't even matches. say it's not even a semi regular thing. It's probably something he just breaks out occasionally. Yeah, I thought that was by far the most memorable part of this match. Other than that, um, you know, Delirious just gets like a flash pin basically. Uh, after some solid stuff. So I thought this match was, was solid. It, it didn't blow my mind, but that one spot kind of did blow my mind. Jeff, uh, what what here did or did not blow your mind? So a couple things. Uh, I want to correct myself from earlier. Joe was not on the Ohio double shot that Loki wrestled Jack Evans uh, oh, as his yeah. replacement. And Loki and Daniels the night before in Dayton. Um, but he was announced and then he got the staph infection and got pulled. This was one that we knew he wasn't going to be on ahead of time. And that's why it was uh, something so different. But as far as Delirious and Claudio, the single leg uh, giant swing is incredible. I, obviously, like Delirious is not, you know, a massive human being, but he's still, you know, 195 200 pounds and getting swung around like a child by claudio um but i i love this opener i i think it's probably one of the better matches on the show um as far as like a wrestling match goes uh for my tastes um even delirious didn't do too much of the shtick stuff which had worn thin for me by this point um I like the contrasting personalities that the match starts with it. Uh, Claudio offers the handshake. Delirious counters the handshake with just that gnarly scream scowl that he does. Uh, and Claudio sells that in appropriate fashion. Um, they have a really good wrestling match. Like this, this felt like the type of opener that gets overlooked because of what else is on this show. 
but I think it deserves a lot of credit and equal credit to both guys for looking like true Ring of Honor stars. Yeah, I, I thought this was a fairly sedate opener. Like, I thought it was fine. Uh, Claudio works over uh, Delirious' knee a lot. Like Matt mentioned, I think the, the one-legged giant swing was a highlight. I also like just at one point Claudio just picks up Delirious like by the knees and ran, like goes, takes a running start. You know, Jeff talking about Claudio's strength, you know, ramming Delirious' knees first into the top turnbuckle. And then he like sits out driving Delirious like knees first into the mat. I thought, oh, that's some really, between that and the one-legged giant swing, that's some really inventive like fun knee work but then a lot of the match is also just more basic clubbering of the knee and you know this is a match again i i described this as this is one of those kind of not trying to steal the show opener. it's more like we're kind of easing the crowd into the show opener um i also another highlight i liked was a claudio uh doing european uppercutting delirious out of the air as he goes for uh shadows over hell and granted we've seen a lot of Claudio European uppercut someone out of the midair, but I thought as the standards of those go, this one was a really good one. Like he made really good contact on it, caught him perfectly. It was just great timing, great execution. One of the nicer ones I've seen in a while. And uh, it was nice to see Claudio here. A good falsy after that as well. uh, With Delirious getting to the ropes post neutralizer. And uh, it was nice. Like Matt, you mentioned, uh, you know, it was nice to see Claudio in like a regular match after all the brawls. Uh, you know, I think we both think Claudio's matches in Ring of Honor since turning a heel have been kind of mid for various reasons. But I thought his his personal performance here was actually like a step up from a lot of stuff. Like I thought he kind of gave a little more here. And, and maybe because it was more a regular match rather than the CZW style stuff, he was more in his element. So I thought, you know, this was a good little decent above average uh, opener. And as um, Matt and Jeff both mentioned earlier this will become a theme that we'll see into different levels throughout the night you can see it immediately in the opening match the lights during the show briefly flickering like off and on very like split second but fairly frequently not too frequently but it'll get more severe later on including in one match that does not make the show in part because of what the lights do and that will bring us to the second match of the show, the embassy of Jimmy Rave and Sal Renaro, scored to the ring by uh, Daisy Hayes. Although, again, not Prince Nana, he did not make it to the double shot because Ring of Honor is on a budget and can't pay for trans. Or, as Dave Prezak would say, I believe he said for this match that um, Prince Nana was, I think he said something to the effect, was dealing with an uprising in Ghana. So, uh yeah, I always love the excuses they come up with, but uh, Jimmy Rave and Salvernaro defeated the Second City Saints of Ace Steel and Cole Cabana in 14 minutes, three seconds, when Rave pins Cabana after uh, Renaro hit his big springboard spinning kick on Colt, and Colt fell fell backwards over um, Rave, who was basically on his hands and knees directly behind Colt, uh, selling, and we'll get to what he was selling in a bit, I'm sure, uh, Jeff. This is an interesting match for you to start first, not only because, you know, it's just a it's your turn to cover a match is the way I try and split up who gets the first dibs. But also you've had get, working in a good plug for your show. You've had two of the four wrestlers in this match on an honorable mention. Both Jimmy Rave and Sal Renaro have done interviews on your show going over their entire Ring of Honor career. So people should check those out. Those were good interviews. So maybe you might be a little biased. What did you think about this match? I'm very biased because I love all four of these guys so much. And I'm going to, first of all, I'll, I'll single out Sal 
Renaro and Ace Steel, who I think in the history of Ring of Honor, for people that were used in very limited roles or used based on where they were located, I think Sal and Ace are two of the most versatile and talented wrestlers and promos that Ring of Honor had access to and just never did anything with beyond obviously Cage of Death for Ace and this embassy role and the tag titles with Mama Luke for Sal. There was a lot of meat on the bone for both of those guys. Ace Steel is, I think, right now, present day 2023, one of the best Finnish guys in wrestling or adjacent to wrestling. I don't know if he's officially back yet or not giving finishes, but um, I would put a steal on par with like a Jerry Lynn for fleshing out matches and coming up with creative ways to end matches. Uh, In terms of this tag team match, uh, I love the way everybody plays off of one another here. Uh, The natural cabana, Sal comedy stuff, um, you know, the cowbell being involved, playing off of what Ace used in the Cage of Death. Uh, even Hayes, I think, has really good timing in this uh, for her interference and some of the distraction she uses, like toward the end. But I just, I really like everybody in this match i like this tag team match i don't want to like say it's a five star you know melts or humping match but it's a good solid tag team match and i think the crowd really got into this new version of the embassy without nana there which was something of a a rarity because nana was such a, a heat magnet um, Daisy did a good job kind of filling that role as Nana was handling his uprising. Um, but I, I think my main takeaway from this tag is just how good a steel was at this point and how after cage of death, like nothing was done to capitalize off of what could have been another mid to top tier promo and wrestler on the roster. Yeah, people did miss Nana because we got, I think, for the second straight night, a We Want Nana chant. Um, I, this match was a lot of comedy, you know, facing off against Cabana. I think the new embassy was at their goofiest because certainly Sal and Jimmy know how to, like, comedy heel show a lot of ass, kind of work it up that way, and they're good at it. And, you know, Sal in this match is basically treated like a glorified jobber. I realize that was his gimmick at this point, but I felt a little bad. Like, at one point, Colt get um he gets Colt in a, in a, I think, like a wrist lock or something, and Colt just yells, it doesn't hurt. And I was like, <laughs> it was funny, but I was like, oh, like, poor Sal. And, um, you know, they do classic wacky spots like Cell runs back and forth over Rave as Rave's caught in a sub- submission. He's like oblivious that he's hurting his partner and running over him. You know, we get a whole host of spots. We saw on the previous two Cell Rave tags like Cell getting slapped by his own, you know, stable mates, things like that. Uh, I thought the comedy was enjoyable enough. This is the kind of match where even though in terms of like the marquee, because again, this was, you know, no real story or anything – 
you know, this, this is probably the right place, second from the bottom on this show to put it. But I feel like this is the kind of match that actually works when you put higher on the card between like two big matches, because this is like, in what my opinion, like a good cool down match in the sense of people are going to enjoy this because it's going to be so different than your rah, rah, serious, you know, work rate, a million near fall matches that this is the kind of match. If I was a booker, you'd love to ha- kind of have in your pocket to be able to be like, all right, fans will still enjoy and react to this. But we'll kind of break it up so two really crazy wild matches don't have to directly follow each other. Uh, a couple things annoyed me. They're, they're both kind of – well, the first is pretty minor, um, which is they did this spot where Colt and Ace start switching out and doing non-tags. And the heels start, like, distracting the ref, complaining about it, which it's a heel move from the baby faces. And I get that sometimes faces do heel things to establish heels to clown on them. But my issue was later on, the heels do the same thing, their own distraction spot, so they can cheat. And at that point, you really can't feel sympathy for the faces because the faces did it first. And I thought, if you just switch the order of those spots, it makes complete sense. Cause then you're like, Oh, the faces are only doing it to get revenge on the heels. So I thought that was, you know, that's a minor nitpick. I think the more major nitpick for this match would be the finish where a steel comes in and he uses a foreign object behind the ref's back, which is his cowbell. And he just brains rave with it. And you could argue it's another tit for tat because if you watch really closely, Daisy Hayes, uh, tosses rave a foreign object. But the problem is, Ace is already entering the ring with the cowbell before Daisy tosses Rave anything. So, it, like, the way it comes off, maybe they plant, maybe the timing was just a lot, but the way it comes off is like, Ace just decided at the end of this match, I'm gonna fucking kill this guy with a foreign object. Rave sells, Ace leaves the ring. Sal immediately hits a springboard spinning kick on Colt, who falls backwards over Rave, who's selling the cowbell, and it turns into a, a pin. So it's kind of like, oh, the heels win, but it's kind of like a weird, circumstance like it just they kind of lucked out win but also it's kind of a weird end because to recap the baby face uses a foreign object on the heel it works and they immediately lose seconds later um so again i thought it was an above average comedy tag i just a little weird the other thing i want to mention too which is the, the the probably the most noble thing about this match is Ace legitimately hurts Jimmy Rave with this cowbell. Like, um, yep. you, the, the camera does not show it very much. You get, you see a one thing of the blood after the match, but they don't really get many good shots on them. But the observer and the torch both, uh, report on this. The observer wrote, Jimmy Rave was hurt legit when Steele hit him with a cowbell, which cu- resulted in a deep cut as well as a concussion. And then the torch wrote, uh, ROH is claiming that Jimmy Rave suffered a concussion and needed seven staples in his head after he, being hit by Ace Steel's cowbell in, last Saturday in Cleveland. And he's been listed as doubtful for this weekend. And I'll just note, Rave, you know, trooper to the end, he ended up working that weekend. But, Matt, what do you think about it? Probably not, you know, one of Jimmy Rave's favorite matches, but what do you think about it? Yeah, I was. it's, it's funny because at the beginning when I first saw Ace with the cowbell, I was like, oh, it's cool that Ace has, like, made this cowbell part of his whole shtick. And then it's like, oh, maybe not so cool if that's what the outcome is going to be. Um, yeah, the match definitely leaned more toward the silly. And in that sense, it was it was fun. But, I, you know, I really did enjoy the previous two Rave and Renaro tag matches where they had, you know, some of the silliness early, but then got more serious down the stretch. So I liked those a little bit more. You know, the, the idea of like, like you mentioned where Cabana was basically no selling and when, and when Sal slapped Ace's chest, you could hear Cabana yelling. That's really, that's, you know, oh, that's pathetic. Um, yeah, that maybe took the Sal's a jobber thing a little bit too far. Again, just cause like, like we said, he had just been a tag team champion, not much, not, 
too much before this. Um, but, um, you know, one, one other thing that I did want to say. So, yeah, Jeff mentioned Daisy Hayes. I think she's been great in all of these embassy tag matches. I, I, Absolutely. I she's been like, for me, like one of the forgotten gems of this era, how great she's been in this act. And, you know, I, I'd sad that it's not going to go on for so much longer, but she's, she's really the great part. Like, especially considering that Nana's not there, she really brings a lot of the, uh, the embassy vibe to the, to the match when he can't, uh, do it himself. Um, I love that they've given her like a little character, even just the, her limited time where like in this match, and this is a spot they keep doing now where like someone throws toilet paper at the end. I think Colt does, and she has to be held back and they keep doing that spot now where like they've crafted this character for her where she's like, she has like no fear in her. Like she always has to be held. She, she has the most guts at heart of anybody in the embassy. She wants to fight everybody regardless of like their, their size or gender or anything. Yeah. She's great. There's also another moment that I thought was funny where Ace is standing over Rave and he yells, you want a broken arm? To which Rave, I think pretty naturally responds, no. <laughs> so that was a good spot. And then also there's one point where uh, Rave has a steel in a, side headlock and ace pulls jimmy rave's hair to get out and i was just thinking you know ace when somebody has their arm right in front of your like chin like that there's another way you could get out of that i hope maybe one day he learns what that other (laughs) tactic is you know maybe he'll he'll figure out some other methods of getting out of something like a side headlock um but anyway yeah i thought the match was was entertaining Uh, that that you popped me Matt, um, I'll let you say it. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I, I didn't say anything. I'm just saying there are other ways of getting out of a side headlock. That's all. Uh, I'll, I do have a bone to pick with A Steel here, though, Matt. And uh, be careful, Trevor. Uh, uh, no, I, I, I am outraged here. You can come for me, teeth, teeth first, if he wants to, because I'm pissed. I don't know what you're, uh, ta- I don't know what you're talking about. Prazak during this match. So we, we, we talked about, I even put on Twitter when we covered that show a couple shows ago, the cage of death at death before dishonor, you know, the great a steel promo. And in, in that he, he names his, his cowbell bunkhouse bell, Billy in this match. Dave Prezak makes a big point. He, he uh, talks about how a steel has named his cowbell goose. I, where's the cowbell name continuity, Matt? This, this, I, I, I can't take this. Is it Goose? Is it Bunkhouse Bell Billy? Is this a different cowbell? Also, bunk, also Bunkhouse Bell Billy is a much better name than just Goose. Yeah. <laughs> um, Maybe this is like the Midwest cowbell, and it only works Midwest territories, and the other one's more East Coast-based. That, you know what? That, just, that, that's the best it. explanation I could think of. He's got to switch back to Billy clearly because clearly this this bell works stiff judging by this match. But um, yeah, the, I want to mention the one other spot I liked. There's a spot where um someone's gonna hit Rave with a tope and Sal just pushes the Rave out of the way like sacrifices himself. And I thought again, those are the kind of spots if you want to make it where like. Matt, you were talking, we both talked about maybe they're leaning a little too hard in like the Sal's, the jobber when he was the tag chef, like you mentioned before. Th- that's a spot I feel like it, where it works, where Sal is really subservient to Rave, but it's, it's not in him being yeah, weak. It's just more com- like he's, he's, he's competent though. Yeah. Yeah. He's such a simp for Rave that he'd rather, you know, take a, a blow than let anything happen to Jimmy. Like that, I think that was a kind of a good spot for that. Um, we now go backstage where we're joined by Brian Danielson. 
Uh, Brian says, ever since Cage of Death, people ask him why he did what he did to Samoa Joe with that show. He says, people now call me the ROH trader. Jim Cornette even called me the ROH trader. He says, Brian even says, fans after the show slashed my tires. He said, in, 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 in a line that can't possibly be true. Um, Brian then says, he bleeds for ROH, but this is a capitalist society, and that means everyone acting within their own self-interests. And for once in his life, he stopped being a socialist, and he started being a capitalist, and he took advantage of something he wanted to do. Uh, Brian says he just wanted to take Joe down a peg and show him who who was really the man around here, because the fans keep chanting things like, Brian, Joe's going to kill you. Brian says, Joe can't kill me, and for Joe to win the ROH championship, that's the only way he's even going to be able to take it from Brian. Brian then moves on to Nigel McGuinness at their match tonight. He says... Um, his dream of unifying the ROH singles titles tonight is not going to happen. And in fact, if Brian wins tonight, he thinks he should, that should make him the number one contender for Nigel's pure title. And then he'll be the one to unify the title. So we're already working some, um, I said, oh, I was saying already working in some build for their upcoming match in the UK. But then I realized, oh, that's only actually like three shows after this. So that's actually coming up pretty uh, quickly. I thought this was a pretty good pro. It's always funny to hear like Brian Danielson talk about being like an anti-corporate socialist, like in the far flung future where we know he's spent most of his career working for like billionaires. But I, th- I, 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 not that I'm like n- angry at him or anything. It's just a funny sound, thing. Sound, but Honestly, uh, you sound angry, Trevor. Well, yeah, I'm outraged. He, Brian Danielson is a sellout. You, you, corporate swine but matt or jeff like what do you guys think about this well i so we've um we've seen a lot of good brian danielson in ring promos i think this might have been my favorite of his backstage promos uh that we've seen yet um i liked how he tied everything together and you know honestly the whole socialist thing i it was you know it's in the late 2010s it became kind of you know, I, I don't know how to say trendy, but there is there were a number of well-known indie wrestlers that said they were socialists and kind of touted that. Um, Zack Saber Jr. most notably, some other people that have since been canceled as well. Um, but <laughs> including uh, some that, without naming names, that have outright kind of admitted that they played it up just to earn like fan love. Yeah, and Danielson saying it here. Uh, in 2006 was incredibly unusual for a pro wrestler to just be like, I'm a socialist. And I get like, he's in character, but I think that, you know, that, that Danielson, especially back then did have that side of him, you know, this, uh, you know, this uh, skepticism of capitalism and, you know, maybe he was a socialist. I mean, and that's not a critique I consider, I consider myself one, honestly, but I, um, I, um, it just made me think, and I know this is a big tangent. Um, so, you know, you could stop me, but, it made me think about the quirkiness of Brian Danielson as a wrestler in general, and this doesn't necessarily have to do with being a socialist or anything, but it, you know, him talking over the years about how he has very little ambition compared to a lot of people, which we've always sort of been like, hmm, I don't know if I believe that, you know, like he seems pretty ambitious in some ways. But now, and like I said, this is June 2023 that we're recording this, there's, you know, talk in the news of, Danielson gaining a lot of backstage power in AEW and, you know, having a, a hand in creative and stuff like that. And it just made me think, given Danielson's quirkiness and his whole notion of being um, unambitious, does it surprise either of you that 
Danielson would even want that kind of backstage power in AEW. He never really struck me as the guy that was looking to be a power broker in a major wrestling company necessarily. I mean, you know, you know, and it might be great that he is. I'm not like criticizing him, but it is, you know, it does sort of go against the, uh, the narrative that he's built for himself through the years, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. It, it's interesting in the sense that, um, you know, Brian apparently in his latter years in WWE was, you know, helping out with creative or chipping in ideas, at least for some things on his own. And yeah, it, it's interesting because I always got the impression. So clearly this must be something he enjoys or at least tolerates on some level, maybe enjoys, but I always got the impression before that, that, if you would ask me, is that the kind of thing Brian would like? I would say no, because Brian to me always came off as a guy from like just following interviews and books and things that really loved the wrestling part of wrestling and not maybe wasn't in love, in love with the other parts. Like he has frequently talked about how, you know, when he's trying to train people, including during this area's the Ring of Honor wrestling school, that he would outright say, like, I wasn't a great trainer. I, uh, you know, I'm, and, you know, he talked about, during that era where he was could not get cleared to wrestle in WWE, where they brought him back, you know, to be kind of an on-air authority figure, how that drove him crazy. Like he couldn't handle being that close to wrestling and not wrestling. So to me, maybe it's different because he now does is able to wrestle again. But to me, it always sounded like I always got this impression that Brian Dennis was a guy who loved the wrestling, but he wasn't a, one of these lifer guys who was like. I just want to be around it in any way possible. Cause sometimes he's even said in interviews like, Oh, I could see a life eventually without wrestling or, you know, this was the guy that probably a year or two before this, when he was in a kind of a, a low ebb talked about, Oh, maybe I could like leave this all and join the peace corps. So the idea the idea now that Brian Daniels is going to be like entrenched in the corporate structure, the creative of a company, he, in that uh, double or nothing presser that happened this week, he was even talking about how he was reading nonfiction business books about how to like talk to people. So maybe, maybe, so maybe he's not a socialist anymore. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know, but it, it is like, that's, that's the kind of stuff that would be fascinating just to pick his brain. And the thing about Brian Danielson is he's really thoughtful whenever anyone interviews him. Like I'm sure he would give you a really honest, well-considered answer to that question. I, I think that would be fascinating, but we will never get to talk to him, Matt. So uh, we we will never so know. But I, I think Matt hit on something really important there with Brian, in that this backstage promo was so good compared to what you've seen before and what you see sometimes in front of an audience. And I mean, you guys all basically racked up a bunch of the same points i wanted to make but to me the thing about brian when you see him he's an inch from cracking a smile at all times like yeah he's talking serious business but you know it's so serious that he thinks it's funny yeah i actually and and, and not to drop but i actually tweeted during the anarchy in the arena match uh like whenever i see brian danielson on screen and he's not like subtly smiling I am always worried that he has another concussion because like that's mm-hmm. Brian, that's Brian. Like he's, he's, he's like, he's always like uh, a half a step away from smiling or laughing when it comes to this stuff. Well, and, and I think too, that's what makes him so real and believable and authentic. And to me, that authenticity that Brian Danielson presents is what I want to see from my pro wrestlers. It's why I love Samoa Joe. It's why I love CM Punk. 
It's why I love Brian Danielson. And they're all very different forms of being authentic for better or for worse. Um, with this promo, he hit on every key point that his story was telling uh, from Joe to Nigel to unifying the belts. Um, and, you know, as far as him running some sort of creative or, or business side of AEW, if anybody is going to understand the struggles of being a professional wrestler at any level, whether you're a top, top guy or, you know, you're struggling to get uh, a dark match before a dynamite or a collision taping or even to get on one of those 20 match Ring of Honor shows, um, Brian's going to understand it. And he definitely struggled as a trainer and, and you know, freely has talked about it. Um, but I feel like as a human being, he gets the emotional side more than anything else. And I think that's an underrated talent that he can help the future of the wrestling business with, especially at AEW where it seems like everybody's coming from a different place. Yeah. And I, I just know in media, immediate interviews this week, he seemed incredibly happy where he was at and what he was doing. So if Ryan Danielson's happy, I'm happy. So that moves us on to the next match. Jay Briscoe scored to the ring by Mark Briscoe, defeated Jimmy Jacobs with Lacey in, in his corner via pinfall in 12 minutes, 20 seconds after he hit the Jay Driller. But before we even get the match, we start with just Lacey rushing to the ring as the ballad of Lacey plays. She gets on the mic and tells people, turn off the song, which gets booze, of course. She tells the crowd that they're losers who got off their fat asses and came from their mom's basements to see Lacey's angels in action. She says, one fan, I guess, is melting off. We can't say, hear what they're saying, but she just goes, such vulgarity to the one fan, which made me chuckle. Um, but Jimmy is nowhere to be found. Lacey's pissed, at which point the house lights go completely off, and it is not a lighting problem. The ballad of Lacey starts up again, and a spotlight shines on Jimmy Jacobs, who is up in the balcony doing a live rendition of the song on a mic. And he even keeps the song up as he walks all the way down the long flight of stairs to the ring. Lacey, as always, is not impressed, but the crowd is. They're all chanting Jimmy Jacobs. I thought this was a neat, you know, anything you can do to make each individual show stand out. I thought this was neat that they had a, you know, they saw there was a balcony that wasn't that far away. And they probably just figured, hey, we could we could do something different here. And they did. And I thought that was a neat little moment. I thought this match was yet another kind of above average Maybe a little, I would probably put this as the best match of the three so far on the night, although it's depends what you like, but it was also kind of flat for me. It, it's a match where you really miss that. Um, you really notice the lack of story or character. It's, it's all just moves, but it's like mid card level moves and not a mile a minute, just kind of a good medium tempo. Both guys don't get me wrong. They work hard, but it's just them going back and forth doing their usual stuff, but their usual stuff is fun though. Um, for the second straight night, Jacobs breaks out that great flying ha- headbutt to the chest of a standing opponent that Matt we saw last night. Th- this night, the, f- the announcers call it a missile headbutt, which is kind of a cool name for it. Uh, on Jay's end, he's doing his regular stuff, but even as a guy whose offense normally feels pretty weighty and impactful, it looked a bit more painful here. And I wonder if that's just because Jacobs is a smaller and lighter guy, so you can just do your regular stuff and it's just going to look even more deadly. I think one of the things that kind of helps illustrate something this match was missing is that these two guys are currently supposed to be heels at this point in Ring of Honor. 
And I don't, I think they're barely wrestling like heels in this match. In this match, each guy does exactly one heelish thing. Uh, Jimmy goes to the eyes once on J, on Jay, and Jay at one point distracts the ref so Mark can hit Jimmy Jacobs with a forearm, a whopping one forearm outside the ring. I feel like modern wrestling, it can be overproduced, it can be over-agented, and I kind of like sometimes like indie wrestling that doesn't have a lot of that. But in a match like this with two talented wrestlers who are clearly there with their working shoes on, this was probably the rare indie match at this point that could have used a veteran backstage to tell them like, hey, what's the story you're telling tonight? How can we make this match stand out and be new, unique? Like, what, what's, an, what's an angle we can come at this match from? Instead, I thought it was just two guys doing their usual stuff, little else. But enjoyable as that is or isn't, which it's fairly enjoyable. Um, Matt, what'd you think? I think I like this a little bit more than you. I, I, I think what I appreciated most about it is the way they're letting Jacobs be aggressive and feel like Jay's equal in the match, you know, cause especially when you contrast it with Renaro, who is, you know, similar, like small heel had, has sort of a, a comedic gimmick, which I think Jacobs at this point still does. But Jacobs really didn't seem like he was like wrestling like in a way that he was such an underdog. And he, he did hit that cool headbutt that you mentioned. Like the first time I saw that headbutt on the Dayton show, I was like, was that even uh, like on purpose? <laughs> you know, did he slip? And this time you could tell like, oh, he did that on purpose and it's awesome. Also that move that he, he's doing more where he puts uh, his opponent's head against the, the ring post and does a drop kick into it. You know, just more and more of that aggressive stuff. And Jay's offense always looks good. So. I really just appreciate that they let Jacobs have this really good, solid, hard-hitting wrestling match with a clean ending. You know, obviously he lost, but he continues to look better than I remember during this era. So, yeah, I, I definitely thought this was, of the first three matches, the best for sure. Jeff, what do you think about this? So, uh, to me, I absolutely love the live Ballad of Lacey Uh that was my favorite part of the match. Um, not that I thought the match was bad or anything of that nature. I thought it was pretty solid. Uh, probably a little less than you guys. Um, I still think that the tag match and then the opener, then this, I think in my quote unquote power ranking so far on the show, but, um, the heel heel dynamic was odd to me. Um, but then there's like no heel work in the match. Yeah. Uh, it, it was better on DVD watching it back than I remembered from being at the show. Um, I thought Jimmy did a great job making Jay look physical, uh, which is kind of the new presentation as the Briscoes have come back, uh, back at the fourth anniversary. Uh, you know, they've won, I think, five or six tag matches in a row. Um, and now they're here in singles action and they're, you know, like they're not bigger, quote unquote, than everybody else in the tag division, but they're presented as being these road warrior types. And this is just the start of that. So I thought Jimmy did a great job of making Jay seem like this monster uh, in terms of the physicality and his cell on the J driller. I thought was just tremendous. Um, Jimmy Jacobs does not get the credit he deserves for being a seller in, in the ring. 
And I just want to take a, a moment to single him out for his selling in matches because he may not be able to do like the Brian Danielson level of hold for hold, but he tells such a great story every single time he's out there. And the story here is establishing Jay's physicality. Um, even though Jimmy is this over the top in love emo guy, um, he, they're still able to connect in a way that everybody got better for. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the theme of this show is that everybody is better after their match. Even if the match wasn't, you know, full of star ratings, everybody came out moving forward with their stories as opposed to just staying put or moving backwards. And one last move I would want to spotlight too, actually is there's a moment where um, Jay is going to go for a flying leg drop and Jimmy Jacobs is about like three quarters of the way across the rank. What the heck? And Jay moves out of the way. But the thing is Jay jumps and does the move. You know, Jimmy just moves out of the way the last second and he would have hit it like – and to me, that was really impressive because you think about how, flying that much of a distance. And sometimes you see guys can do that, but it's moves where like they can really stretch out where they're – you know, they're jumping with their feet and then they're landing, you know, like an elbow drop. They can really stretch out and just t- make contact with their arm or something. This was a flying leg drop and he was flying that fly where your, your legs have to get under you and ahead of you by the end of the spot. I just thought really like – just really impressive athleticism from uh, Jay Briscoe there. But after the match, Jay gets to the mic. He asks, is everyone's ready for the big farewell, the generation next tonight? Jay says something I can't understand over the house mic because the sound system doesn't really translate on this DVD oftentimes. He uh, seems unimpressed with the generation next in general, though. And then he states it's only going to be a matter of time before the tag belts come back to the Briscoes. Mark then grabs the mic and he tells Homicide. That's time to man up, boy. And Homicide comes out, and we get I don't uh, I don't know I don't remember if this match was a uh, pre-announced or not, but it, you know it's certainly you know very abrupt as we get to it here. Um, it's Homicide defeats Mark Briscoe via pinfall in eight minutes fifty-two seconds after he hit a lariat. So a little bit under nine minutes only for Homicide and Mark here. But what do you think about this, uh, Jeff? I like this. Um... I think it's a good change of pace match too, because we have yet to see a match tonight where both guys went like, you know, 150 miles an hour and just got as many moves in as humanly possible. And they did it, but they didn't wait too long, uh, you know, and go, go over an obscene amount of time. Uh, doing this in, I think it was like eight minutes and 50 seconds or something like that. Um, that the match actually went. I mean, the Tope Con Hilo from Homicide where he lands in the crowd. Um, it, like I remember that knocked back people into each other and you kind of had the domino effect of the plastic chairs losing gravity, losing, you know, doing the job to gravity and just going backwards. Uh, four rows deep. So that was fun. Um, I like the finish to this as well, um, which seems to be a running theme. Uh, homicide not finishing the match with the cop killer always was something that I enjoyed because I think obviously he's known for that move, 
but he's he's actually a really damn good wrestler. And I think the gimmick kind of overshadows that fact sometimes. Uh, so, you know, winning with a lariat and not just a regular lariat, but like the homicide lariat, uh, I think was super impactful. And again, sticks to the theme of Jay Briscoe is the singles match uh, winner for the Briscoe family. And Mark is always happy to go under uh, in the singles match. Uh, Matt, what'd you think about this little sprint here? Yeah, I, I thought this is, I've noticed this with some homicide matches in 2006. It starts off like really awesome. Like, you know, immediately, you know, just like you said, total sprint um, homicide goes after actually Jay first and then Mark hits, hits the springboard drop kick to start. And then when, you know, after Mark um, uh, reverses the hip toss and hits that side belly to belly and Homicide goes to the floor, Mark does this flip dive to the outside and he just lands on the floor. Just like you, I think you had mentioned these insane ass bumps that the Briscoes were taking at this point and basically their entire career. Um, and... It's the first time in the of the night where Prezak yells, "The Briscoes are crazy," and <laughs> I um I noticed that he also says that post match. So I guess that's like a gimmick that they're going for. Like these guys are just insane and out of control, and definitely especially Mark during this era. But there's a lot of great fast paced stuff in the first couple minutes. Then it does sort of do a thing that I've noticed in some homicide matches where it gets a little bit kind of. I don't know, meandering for a few minutes in the middle. And then it kind of goes back to that hot sequence at the end where, um, where Homicide calls for the cop killer, but Mark goes for the cutthroat driver. Homicide is ho- cutthroat driver. Uh, well, what am I? That's a very New York. <laughs> oh, the driver. Voice. The cutthroat driver. That's, that's my, uh, that's my New York coming out. Um, so yeah, Homicide escapes and goes for the, uh, goes for the lariat. Um, you know, Mark blocks, hits a leg lariat, and Mark goes for the springboard crossbody, homicide ducks that, and then he hits the lariat for the clean win. So I like that little series of reversals at the end. So I really, really, really love the beginning. I like the end a lot. Thought the middle took it down a little bit. Um, so I thought it was mixed, but so I'd say it was definitely good overall. Um, just there were maybe some parts that disappointed me given how hot the start was. Uh, I would say this is good too. I, I actually, this was like my favorite match up to this point in the card. Like Jeff said, like we hadn't really had a match on the show yet where it was just like kind of full tilt. And this is so four matches and we get one. Uh, first off though, I don't know why in storyline that the Briscoes who were currently feuding with both Generation Next and now Kenta in, you know, and also in the Hunter of the Tag House just decide to call it Homicide now on this show. Commentary does a good job trying to justify it. They point out that, oh, well, remember when the Briscoes left Ring of Honor in 2004, their final match at that time, you know, was, had low key who was Homicide's partner and the Rottweilers take Jay Briscoe out with a kick. And, but at the same time, I kind of, when you watch it, you, you feel like, oh, that's kind of thin. Like they've been back for months. If that was really pissing off so much, wouldn't they make a point of it more? Mark, then, Mark, you know, Mark does, Mark does mention unfinished business. I, I think. Trevor, that I'm pretty sure this match was announced in advance. And Mark just, you know, mentioned that to say, like, this is, you know, I'm wrestling homicide. And just so you all know, we have unfinished business. I think, I think that's what, where it makes a little bit more sense. I actually like the announcers. Oh, go on. I was going to say, there very well could have been an article on 
you know, in the newswire or whatever was going on at that point. Um, just saying like, Hey, this is the match. Here's why it's happening. Unfinished business from, you know, like just read it in your, your Gabe voice of, you know, with the, the Briscoes were sent away from Ring of Honor after testing the limit by Loki and <laughs> Homicide. And now they're, Mark is out for revenge. So he'll take it out on a Homicide in Cleveland. Yeah, for for my money though, my my the, the announcers later cut with a second explanation, which I think for my money works better. Where uh, they just say at some point the Briscoes are crazy and they're starting fights with everybody right now. <laughs> I, I can get I I can buy into that. The Briscoes are just now ornery in full map mode and like they're pissed off at Kenta, they're pissed off at Generation Next, they're pissed off at Homicide. Like they're just starting fights with everybody every show now, but. Yeah, this I think was... it's fair to say that that is not a stretch from real life either. Yeah. Um, Homicide and the Briscoes, you know, I mean, are two of the acts. I mean, everyone generally in Ring of Honor worked pretty hard. But if you want, if you had any rank, the people on this Ring of Honor roster are like from hardest to least hardworking people in terms of who never mails it in. Homicide and the Briscoes are right at the top or near the top of the list. And in nine minutes here, they just go pretty full tilt. You know, that, that insane bump Mark Briscoe takes where he just flips over the top rope and lands completely on the hardwood floor, nothing to break his fall. Um, that homicide, Jeff, that homicide tope can heal the homicide always does where, yeah, this time it takes them over the guardrail into the front row and Mark, the, the, the impact takes Mark. So he basically lands on his like head and shoulders onto an open chair, which, and then we get a really cool camera angle because basically they wipe out right by the hard camera. So we get a car, a camera angle that we almost never see in wrestling, which is the hard camera pointing like basically completely down at its feet at the base of the hard camera to see like the wrestler right underneath like the hard camera stand, which really cool thing. You, I've watched so much wrestling. I've rarely ever seen that camera angle. So I thought that was like a neat little thing. And then again, Again, it's just a match where another, another match where there isn't really story, but just the effort. And, you know, they took way more punishment than you probably should take in a nine minute mid card match in front of the, this crowd. No offense to Jeff or anyone there, but like um, Mark almost None immediately. Taken. Mark almost immediately after that spot, he takes like a hard chair shot to the back of his head and shoulders. Then Homicide does a flying he- top rope flying head, but Homicide then at- looks like he absolutely murders Mark with a- with contact on that lariat. Homicide's mouth is bleeding. We notice at this point for some reason, you know, it, they, you know, again these these are guys that never mail it in, and they did not mail it in here, even with just nine minutes in the mid card. And good match in that sense, if you just want to see some effort. Immediately after the three count, Jay Briscoe jumps in the ring. He puts the boots to Homicide. Some fans chant for low key. So there were still some fans at this point where basically like anytime Homicide needed a save, there were some fans keeping that torch alive for low key, but would not happen. Uh, Jay does a running kick to Homicide's head, mirroring the kick that low key did to him that took him out. So a nice little bit of symmetry here. They leave the ring. BJ Whitmer comes to the ring to check on Homicide. So they're the last few shows, but since basically Cage of Death, to then, you know, the last night where Homicide second uh, BJ Whitmer in his big match, and now BJ kind of check on Homicide. They're kind of this little thing of BJ's kind of kind of friend. As much of a friend as Homicide has isn't in the Rottweilers at this point. BJ's helping him, and you can hear Homicide say, "Payback's a bitch." I so kind of calm for Homicide saying, "He's just like, okay, I'll remember this. You know, I'll, I'll get my revenge." So 
you know, homicides, homic, you know, there, there are those video games nowadays, those interactive fiction video games where like you will make a choice and there'll be a little caption in the top left corner that says, you know, your care, this character will remember that to let you know, oh, this choice has meaning. And you could easily have superimposed that in that moment where it'll just say like homicide will remember that and it will come up soon. But we now get a highlight video for the history of generation next opening with a caption that reads, it was time for everyone to step aside. And you know, it's a, by rain Washington, it's a nice little stroll down memory lane. And we're getting that of course, because one of the big selling points of this show was that this was the farewell match of generation next. Not to say that certain people there couldn't team together. Certainly Roddy and Aries were the tag champs. They were going to continue to team together, but this was like the last time they were going to use the name and really consider themselves a faction so we get davy richards the irish airborne of dave and jake christ and jarell clark defeating generation next of austin aries jack evans matt seidel and roderick strong in 18 minutes seven seconds when richards pins jack evans after he hits the dr driver so yeah the idea of this was again more symmetry which i i like that gabe does this kind of booking sometimes the full circle stuff where generation next's first match their first real significant match was an eight man tag where they were the four guys trying to break into ring of honor, taking on more established guys and the, and they as the young guys won. And now here they are closing out, returning the favor for guys in the, in the position they were in, in 2004 and they do the honors and put them over. I thought this was a match that requires like no thought to enjoy. And it caused me to think a fair bit because this is basically ring of honor trying to do a dragon gate style match. You know, ring of honor was all in, in this period, no pun intended on the dragon gate style after the WrestleMania six man got such great, um, reception. They, they had, they sent all, you know, they were starting to send a bunch of their guys to work dragon gate. In fact, on commentary, Dave Prezak notes that not only did Seidel and Evans and strong Aries all recently work dragon gate, but the ref of this match, J- Jason Harding, and even the ring announcer, Bobby Cruz also went back down to Japan for dragon gate. So they're, they're really just emphasizing, you know, how many of our guys are going to dragon gate. Seidel and Evans are flaunting their dragon gate tour jackets all weekend. And Prezak then notes, you know, this is a dragon gate rules match match and he goes basically that means you know tags are not needed if a legal man goes to the floor someone else can immediately jump in on their team and i like after he goes through that uh msl the you know, the other commentator you know his fake name jared david he basically says that really just means it's a scramble match that's <laughs> like yes i mean it's basically it's it's a scramble match they've already just been doing dragon gate before dragon gate but this is just 18 minutes of action. It's moves, moves, more moves. It's crazy spot fest. There's a lot of effort here. The crowd's pretty damn into it, certainly more than anything else on the show thus far. And yet it didn't quite hit that top tier to me. I, I always say spot fest, they're the matches that age the hardest and fastest because, you know, the bar for exciting new spots is always being raised. But another thing in matches, a spot fest like this today, they're becoming more and more choreographed and pre-planned in general in wrestling. I'm not a fan of a lot of choreography and pre-planning, but spot fists are the place for it because the things that I don't like about like pre-planning and choreography, which is it makes matches feel more artificial and more like exhibitions and performances. Well, spot fists already feel that way. So it's not really adding a negative. It's only adding the positives of the matches can be even more intricate and faster paced because you already know exactly what you're doing. You know, you can really do wilder things that involve like more cooperation. And this match, I'm sure there was stuff they pre-planned and thought there definitely was, but 
this match, it does feel just, you know, that step slower than a match of that type would feel today. And it feels a lot more of, it's my turn. I've been tagged in. I'm going to think of a minute or two of moves to do. Then I'm going to tag out. Then like matches today where it feels like, oh, everything is like moving and building on top. Like everything is stacking and progressing in intensity because you really thought about this, but still fun, lots of action. Execution isn't always quite as sharp as you'd want it to be. There's a few whiffs or moves that just don't hit that well visually, you know, but exciting match, you know, again, the, the other thing I was comparing to the Dragon Gate matches is like they often would find at least like a moment for like a character stuff or to try and emphasize something. I didn't really feel that again in this match, but it's still enjoyable. I would still say it's very, a very good match. My my favorite moments would be the stuff that feels more choreographed, like the spot where four guys are on the top ropes and they hit simultaneous 630s and shooting star presses and we get four simultaneous kickouts. Like, that's a ridiculous spot, but it's also, like, the most over spot in the match and the most fun. Like, in this kind of match, that's the kind of stuff I kind of want to see, that kind of crazy stuff. And I also liked there was a short sequence near the end where Austin Aries and Davey Richards are just beating each other up. And there's a real intensity to it that the rest of the match doesn't have. Aries hits him and just a disgustingly loud slap. And in that moment, it feels like it's more than random moves. It feels like there's some real emotion and you're seeing like the hottest prospect in ROH, like kind of trying to take his spot from, you know, the guy that was again, kind of in his position a couple of years earlier. And again, something like that, I would have liked a little more of that in the match, but still, I enjoyed the match. I just feel like it's one of those kinds of matches that does lose something a little bit as through the passage of time. But Matt, what'd you think about this? Um, I liked it more than you. I think I, I don't think it was like a top, top, top tier, like match of the year or anything, but I, I'd say the first part of the match, I was getting a little bit frustrated because it kind of did some of the stuff that ROH tag matches would do that would bother me, which is they would sort of look like they were starting to get the heat on somebody, and then like a minute later that person would be out of the match, and they did that back and forth like ten times. But once they got into like the last half where they were just going balls to the wall, throwing everything they could, Dragon Gate style, I just thought it was so much fun and so exciting, and it really just... It just kept me so entertained the whole time. I also do think there was a little bit more of a focus than you're giving it credit for. I think this was a match where it was... Cl- so, so do you remember where when um, Meltzer reviewed the uh, Dragon Gate 6 man? And he was like, if you look real closely, you know, the match was really designed to put over Dragon Kid. And we yeah. sort of watched it and we were like, uh, I mean, I guess. But it wasn't like so like deep or obvious in that way. I mean, obviously he got the finish and stuff. Um, but this match, I think, was really designed to put over Davy Richards. He looked like a world beater here. Everything he did was awesome. I, um, you know, whether it was a part beating the shit out of Ares, he seemed like the leader of the team up to, even to the point where early in the match, it was kind of funny because Clark was, was getting beaten up by Generation Next and Davey would yell things from the apron like, move and duck, which is generally good advice when someone is trying to hit you with something to move and to duck, um, those moves. But he definitely seemed like the, the boss of the team. And I gotta say, it's very obvious to see why Gabe was so high on Davey Richards at this point. I mean, he was really freaking good for his experience level, and he looked great here, I thought. Um, uh, Evans and uh, Seidel, you know, just freshly back from Dragon Gate, 
definitely Evans shows more of a difference here than uh, Seidel did. Not that Seidel wasn't really good, but just, you know, Evans, you could tell, you know, he has, he, like you said, he, he does, he's doing more of the kicks. He, he has the gear now. But ultimately, I just thought, like you said, it was a really, really well done spot fest. Not quite Dragon Gate level, but obviously Dragon Gate inspired and about as good as you could probably get from one of these eight man, you know, um, sprint type of situations in, uh, in this era. I, I still don't get why Clark didn't get more of a showing. I, you know, even Irish Airborne looked good here, despite they, their ROH run getting a bad reputation. But Clark, I think, continues to look great in every appearance that he makes for ROH. So I don't know what happened with him. Um, the other thing that I would say is, I think it's natural to compare this match to the original Generation Next eight-man tag, but this was obviously mm-hmm. something so different because that had a lot of character work in it. It was about a new faction emerging and dominating established legends. It was pretty obvious that there was never an intention to put Irish Airborne, Davey Richards, and Jarrell Clark together as a faction. They don't really... None of these characters have much of a... Um, a personality yet you know obviously you get some Davy Richards uh, promos where he's very arrogant but he's they, they don't really put the, any of them over his characters so you knew this wasn't going to actually parallel the original generation next it really felt more than anything as a way to have a really exciting spot fest and to get Davy Richards over and I think it it was effective in both of those goals so I thought it was a really really good Really, really, really good match. You know, I would say it's a great match. Like, not like a, again, not match of the year or anything, but a great, exciting match. So, Jeff, I want to know what you thought about the match. Also, if you remember, yeah, I always feel guilty asking people about memories for things that are over a decade and a half old. But, you know, this was one of the selling points of the show to the point where it's the title. It's, you know, it's referenced in the title name. Generation Now is about like, hey, it's the, it's the graduation match in a century generation next. As, as a fan that was obviously going to a lot of the shows, like, did that mean something to you or where is it? Because in a way, Generation X was already kind of done. I mean, Aries had even in an earlier show, like months earlier, had cut a promo base saying generation next the name is retired like did 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 going into this night like did that did that mean anything actually was that like a part of the excitement or was it just like eh, like it's going to be a fun match and that's the fun but like idea of oh we're seeing the last quote-unquote generation next match like does that have any worth at this point no not particularly um especially once i kind of figured out that this was not like a passing of the torch type of thing um, I, I have so many thoughts on this match and I like the, as far as like the actual wrestling of the match goes, um, if you look at what this type of match is today, um, this match in 2006 is compared to like, the early show SAT special K divine storm scramble matches. Like it's that natural evolution of you had the scramble matches, then you have something like this. And then you have, you know, some of the crazy high flying matches you see today on like AEW and some of the indies like GCW or PWG, the Lucha spot fests of El Hio del Vikingo and Gringo Loco and that, that type. So there, there is a natural evolution that stood out with this match. 
um, and kind of understanding where its place was in history. Um, the Gen Next faction to me died when Alex Shelley got booted out of the faction. And they, no offense to Matt Seidel, who I absolutely adore as both a professional wrestler and as a person. Um, you already have a high flyer in the group. So you're doubling down on that. I, I don't know. Um, I also think there was a fairly miscalculation from Gabe in making Roddy and Aries the team and not Roddy and Jack. Uh, to be the tag team champions, but maybe that was because of the Dragon Gate tour that you know Jack took more often than not. Um, this match in particular, though, live was insane uh, and was pretty much unlike anything the Cleveland audience had ever seen before. Uh, it was a world-class performance from all eight of these guys, and Matt said it. I mean, Jarrell Clark is somebody that wrong place, wrong time. I don't know what the reasoning is that he didn't have a full time spot after this because uh, he certainly deserved it. But I was under the impression and this is kind of going to speak to the overarching point of the show name, which Gabe put suggestions on the message board for this show to be named, I threw out Generation Now. This show is Generation Now. Um, so that's a pretty important uh, thing to me about watching this show years later. Nice and, work, man. <laughs> I mean, it's no stalemate, which my friend Sean Kimmel came up with. But, uh, you know, I just thought it was... Pretty much. I, I didn't think Irish Airborne was quite ready for all that big spotlight, but I felt like if they had another couple months of microwaving that maybe they could be like a tag team, you know, featured. Um, that didn't seem to work out. Uh, same with Jarrell. But um, I thought about this match as kind of like a passing of the torch to where maybe they could keep the generation next name alive. And after the match was over, you know, I, it was pretty obvious to me. It was the Davy Richard show going into the match and you see how the match plays out. And it is the Davy Richard show rightfully. So for the time and place, I could have seen a really cool moment where Davy gets the win and, Aries and Strong and Jack and Seidel pass the t-shirt to Davey Richards and Davey picks his version of Generation Next um, being Jarrell Clark Jake Christ and Dave Christ in this case uh, but you know that was an idea that was thrown out the window another thing I thought about the match going in was what if Alex Shelley was still around and the match was something like Gen next, uh, you know, as is against like the Briscoes and Shelly and Rave. And you're tying more things into the history of Generation Next, uh, where they where they were and where they're going. Um, 
playing off that first eight man in the tent, uh, as well as where Aries and Strong were going with the Briscoes tag feud. But, you know, hindsight being 2020, this was great. The fans uh, just ate up everything. Uh, Trevor, you hit the spot where everybody does the, the top rope moves and kick out at two and nine tenths. Um, that was just, I rem- I can feel the goosebumps just talking about it because it was one of those like, oh my God, what else are they going to do type of things that you just didn't know what else was possible in 2006. Um, watching this back 17 years later, it's still a good eight man tag match. Um, I've learned that my tastes are a little different in pro wrestling now. Um, so it's not necessarily something I would throw in for comfort watching, but it certainly has its place. And if you look at everything that's been on this show so far, nothing is similar. It's yeah. the, it's a classic ring of honor show in the sense of here's everything under the sun in wrestling that we could possibly do so far. And it's a variety show. And that to me is the heart of ring of honor is variety. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite ring of honor definitely is the variety. And, uh, and to to add to, to add to that about the variety, they've done so many like brawls, over the past few months with the CZW feud, it seemed very intentional that they did this show where they basically did not do any brawls. And I actually appreciated mm-hmm. that. It's like, okay, yeah, we don't need to do a, a big, like, wild, out-of-control brawl on every single show. And in fact, let's take a break. And I really, I actually enjoyed that a lot. But Jeff, yeah, it was I thought a good you- time okay. to pivot. It, it was a great time to pivot, you know, both the time frame of putting CZW in the rearview mirror and also incorporating the, in my opinion, it would have been important to incorporate the guys who were the keys to beating CZW in stories going forward. BJ obviously, you know, had a rough night the previous night. So, you know, he's not on the DVD proper. He was on the live show. Uh, but, the idea of, you know, no, no, nothing for Pierce, nothing for, uh, Ace, uh, outside of a tag match, um, and obviously unintentional blood, uh, with, with poor Jimmy's head. And Sal yeah. Renaro drove the entire way back to Georgia after this show, uh, with Jimmy in the passenger seat. So, um, you know, this, the variety, the, the, pivot in direction um it, it's made for a very enjoyable show but not an all-time show by any stretch of the imagination jeff you came up with a couple interesting ideas there like i i realized that we are just at the point where ring of honor had decided to stop booking alex shelley but i think you talk about booking alex shelley on the on the opposite side i think if you really want to make this like feel more special and be more of a unique thing if you book him for one more night, say it's one night only, but he's going to team with everybody again on Generation Next. You know, they're going to get along because it's this important or just it means something. 
you know, I think that would have been an interesting draft. You're like, oh, it's going to be like a 10-man tag and where we're, Shelly's actually reunited with these guys. Like, that would have been interesting to have one-night gimmick booking. And I think the idea, too, of, yeah, you could have done something with Generation Next in the sense of, oh, go on. I said, and then he could turn on them in the match, and that leads to the Davy Richards show. There's a million things you could have done, and hindsight is, of course, 2020. But, I, I mean, this this was just so good. Um, it was quite quite a spectacle. And the idea of the Generation Next, like, somewhat, like, the young guys kind of taking it from them, maybe even not being given it, but kind of doing what, you know, Generation Next did when they came in, which is basically like saying, hey, we, we want this. We're taking this. We're, we're taking the name from you. You know, we're we're going to beat you up, and we're going to basically say we're what you you guys used to be. But any, either way, I, I, a couple of things I want to talk about. The first is, um, it is interesting, and Matt, you touched on it. Both of you guys did that. Like this, really is only on pair. You'd say, oh well, this should be a lift off for all four of the young guys that beat the big generation next table. But really, if you look after this. Yeah, Davy Richards continues the, you know, the, they continue the big push they had for him right out of the gate. This is Jarrell Clark's last match in Ring of Honor. He never works for Ring of Honor again. Not even, not even, not even during that 2008 period where they have bring back. I looked up Cage that, that and could not from, find that from FIP. No, no, no I looked up Cage. He works for uh, he works for FIP for like another year or two, but this is it. I think ever for him in ring of honor and even uh, Irish airborne, like basically after this moment, their pushes, whatever like low level push they were getting is done. Like they win one or two matches in singles and tag, but they, they, they keep getting booked in ring of honor into 2007, but they're basically from this point on just there to mostly lose. So like really in a match that you would think on paper, Oh, this is like a liftoff. It's really like the end for three of the four guys. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I looked up some. I, I was trying to think of well, what the heck went on with Jarrell Clark. I couldn't find why. Because, like you guys, I agree, he looked good in the limited opportunities he got. And I all I could find was I found a 2007 interview with Jarrell Clark from a uh, online world of wrestling. Mike Waters conducted. And he asked Jarrell, "Quote: How did you feel when Ring of Honor contacted you to be on the other side of the ring when Generation Next was to have their last match as a stable?" And Jarrell Clark just answered, "Honored." He put a lot of faith in me to work with four of his top guys alongside some great up-and-comers it was a weekend that i will never forget well so he seems very grateful but it's like he wasn't getting any more book again i don't know what happened like like it's so weird but um in hindsight being 2020 what if the tag team in that match was jarrell and jay fury the too fast too furious from fip And maybe the fourth guy was, I don't know, Kenny King or... Seth DeLay just had a good performance in Ring of Honor. Seth DeLay, yeah, another NWA Wildside guy. Um, I mean, you know, there there was a litany of talent out there for these spots. And if I didn't have such confidence that that match was supposed to be the Davey Richards hard launch party... Uh, I would have questions about the makeup of the Davy Richards side of the match, but I can't complain. I mean, this was, you know, Cleveland has gotten their fair share of big moments over the last couple of years that, you know, since Enter the Dragon in October of uh, 2005. And 
I, I was just grateful that we had good wrestling from my favorite promotion. And Matt, I want to point out, like you met, you gave props to Davy Richards. I want to throw a little more flowers his way because I thought one thing that he did that really made him stand up apart on his team is he, yeah, he does show some personality. It seems it's funny because Davy Richard, like from people that just watched a bit of him, his early rep was, oh, he's just another generic, muscular, short, white guy, like Erger, angry jock, work rate wrestler. But he was always showing more personality and more goofiness than that. Like one of my favorite moments in this match is he drew German suplexes, Matt Seidel and Matt, and he immediately stands up and smugly tells his partner, I got him, but he doesn't realize Matt Seidel landed on a seat is waiting behind him. And then he turns around, you know, Seidel hits Davy Richards with the move. And then Ray Richards does like this old school stumble cell. And then he throws like a punch in the air before he collapses to the match. Like Davy Richards was such a goddamn ham which is something, you know, it's such an interesting contrast with, like, the rest of how he wrestles. But he was not afraid to, like, be completely fucking a goofball in a fun way in there. I did think the end was kind of weird where the end of this match, they're they're doing all – they're doing the classic dive train where everyone's doing dives to the outside. And they're you're building up as you do in a good dive train to, like, the craziest high flyer. They're teasing Jack Evans about to do something. He's doing a handspring, so he's going to go for one of his, like, space-flying tiger drop kind of variations. And Davy Richards grabs him off by the ropes mid handspring stops the dive takes him out then hits the dr driver and wins and it gets a heel reaction and i thought it was kind of weird that they're pushing davy richards pretty hard at this point and he's a baby face at this point and they gave him like the natural heel spot to win the match with like that was a little bit like i i, I wonder what the thought process of that is didn't really but, seem uh, to uh to, you know stop him from getting over though so no. I, don't, I don't think it really mattered in the end and so no, the last and thing you're I'll- establishing what Davey does to end matches like he he shouldn't have won this like the the Davey pinning Jack Evans was the appropriate combination of the end of the match. But to me, you want to give the fans the proper sampling of what Davey Richards is and what he can become. And. Even, you know, this verbal, interactive Davy Richards, the ham, as you said, uh, which I think is just such a perfectly appropriate description. um, This was in existence all the way into the No Remorse Corps and um, even a little bit beyond that. And then once Delirious and Cornette took over and the Wolves teamed up, you got more serious Davy Richards and. The ability for him to kind of do a little of both, I think that boded well for him becoming eventually the top guy. And then the directions he took were, you know, he was super serious. And from everything I've heard, he didn't want to be a super serious guy. Yeah, He wanted to have this interaction and the ha-ha stuff. So, I don't know. The other thing I want to ask you guys both, because usually on the show, when a wrestler leaves for the rest of what's going to be the through the years run, we kind of talk about their career a little bit. They were really notable. And I thought, since this is the last match for Generation Next, one that I want, I want to kind of get your thoughts just a little bit. I just want to touch on, at one point, Gabe jumps on commentary on this just to briefly put over Generation Next. And he says, you know, without Generation Next, there might not be a Ring of Honor today. I wouldn't go that far. 
what I would say is that they were an important secondary reason for their recovery in 2004 after the Feinstein scandal and the TNA exodus of TNA pulling the talent. Because I would say, like, the guys that I felt like Ring of Honor would have died without is Joe, Punk, and then to a lesser degree, Homicide and Danielson. Because those were the guys that they were the biggest names that stayed behind, and they really worked their asses off and were in all, like, the DVD-selling matches for the rest of 2004 that you know was the lifeblood of the company i think generation next was like right was the tier under them the next reason that they really did well because when you think about generation next i think what they gave to the company was something that i think you know AEW went with this whole punk being gone for a while which is something i always think about a lot is when someone a big star leaves your company it doesn't for a little while at least it doesn't matter how good the company is with the star being gone fans will compare and go yeah it'd be better if this guy was back you know it doesn't matter what AEW did for a while i felt like i fans in their heads some of them were thinking yeah they'd be even better if punk was here it's not as cool it doesn't feel as big because we know punk used to be here and now he's not here and i feel like one thing that helped wrestling helps wrestling companies avoid that and one thing to help ring of honor avoid that was when you have someone new come in after those stars leave and you kind of say well we're not a lesser version of what you saw we're now something completely new we got new guys you know that are coming up and generation next gave them something new you know punk danielson homicide they were joe they were already there and established but generation next coming up was like well, now we got something completely different. And I saw fans at the time, they were kind of saying almost like, you know, it was a good trade, even though you shouldn't really think of things that way. But like, hey, we got these four guys that are really exciting for for Daniels and uh, AJ Styles. And I felt like in 2005, 2006, that's where you got the re- – back when Ring of Honor was in like a healthier place. That's when Generation Next was – delivering more of the the dvd selling matches on their end but i think it was important for ring of honor to have like this new hook this this like you're watching new things we're not just a reduced version of what we used to be the and it was generation x doing that and i guess if you look at maybe why this team tonight that beach generation x doesn't get pushed as hard in parts because in 2004 Ring of Honor desperately needed Generation Next to succeed. They needed to fill out their mid-card again after the exodus. In 2006, they don't really need Jarrell Clark. They don't need, you know, the Irish Airborne. You know, like, they, they will do fine. It would be great if they did hit, but they're not in that same position. Like, there's a way you book guys when you need them to succeed that I think is different than when people how people book people when you just kind of want them to succeed. And... Yeah, they were a great stable and uh, had a lot of fun watching them. Do you guys have any thoughts on them after that? Go ahead, because I, I want to ponder on something here for a second. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, I, 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 I kind of, I kind of think they were even a little bit more important to ROH's survival than you're giving them credit for. Not that you're not giving them credit, but. Yeah, like obviously the fact that the, like the champion and like punk and stuff were there was were, was the key, but it is really important that they had new stuff because, like I said, the the big problem that ROH had in two thousand four wasn't that Daniels and Styles were gone. Like Daniels was a big part of the programs and stuff, and Styles was the pure champion. But I don't think people were watching. ROH to see those two guys by that point anyway. I think those guys were TNA guys by that point, even even though they were still in ROH. I think, you know, it was much more about Joe Punk. So I don't think that 
it was like, oh, God, we have such a gap now that Daniels and Styles are gone. I think it was more like people are completely disillusioned with the company because of what the uh, the, pr- the previous owner had allegedly did, and people just felt kind of disgusted by it. And they needed something to just amp up their excitement. So, yeah, Joe was number one. That title reign, you know, punk, you know, that, like that, you know, that was it. But I, I would put... In 2004, I would put Generation Next ahead of Danielson as a reason why ROH was still exciting. I think these new guys, they delivered so much more than you could have expected from them. They gave them the ball and they just ran with it so hard. I would say in 2004, especially Alex Shelley, um, but but Aries too. I mean, Aries had some incredible matches, you know, with, with... you know, probably Danielson's best matches that year were mostly with Ale- with uh, Austin Aries, and to have that guy who came out of the blue, who could plausibly beat Samoa Joe and take that moment, and then run with the title for the next you know what six months or so in a in a credible way, you know, would ROH have died? I don't know, but would it have continued to be as beloved as it was without Generation Next and continued to ascend? I think probably not. I, I don't. I don't think you can overstate just like how it's not. It was not a given at all that those guys would perform as well as they did, given the spot they were given. And I actually really liked your comparison to AEW after Punk because you know when you think about it, yeah, that's something that AEW did not do. They did not like find these people to just like give it a whole new color and give it a whole new characterization and give them a chance to totally step up and fill CM Punk's shoes and that in that same way. You know, I mean, maybe if they had gotten Jay White a little bit sooner and put him in that role and given him the ball, maybe he could have done it. Um, maybe if they had given even even bigger push to Ricky Starks, you know, something like that, I don't know. But, you know, really, what AEW had when Punk wasn't there was basically what they had when Punk was there, except without Punk. And maybe that's why people were not, um, you know, maybe that's why the excitement level died down a bit despite some quality stuff. I don't know. But, you know, it, it would be interesting to see, like, if if instead of, you know, just going with what they had after Punk left, they did just be like, all right, let's throw a lot of new faces in prominent positions. And they, you know, made Bandito a main eventer or whoever, you know, whoever some of the newer yeah. faces were. And just really had them take over the show in the way that Generation Next did for a lot of those 2004 shows. So I do, I do think that Gabe, what he said about them was not such hyperbole. I think there's a lot of truth to it. And Jeff, before I throw it to you, I just want also, I thought, Matt, I thought that was great. But like, I, I, one thing I was thinking when you were talking to, I just want to emphasize like, you know, how, Four guys, even if you add in Seidel joining after, like there was no weeks links in the state. Like to think it's one of those things we can really only appreciate now that we're doing a podcast like this with all this hindsight. The idea that those guys were all great right at the time they broke in as Generation Next, but like that every single one of them has had a long, really great career. I mean, different ones of them have risen to different levels of like mainstream, you know, it pushes, but in terms of just putting out good wrestling year in and year out for a long time, especially when they all work hard styles. Like the fact that you got like a stable with no weak links, you got, they all got in on the ground floor together. Like they were just so lucky. They had access to those four guys 
when they did, you know, and it, it's just kind of wild that you got, you get four prospects like that. Like it would have been a great stable if you had three of them were great. And then one of them was just kind of like filler and didn't turn out to be much. The fact that all of them like hit, so to speak, is just really impressive. So I think generation next, much like Gabe went into to hyper game mode, I do think Generation Next was right up there with Joe and Punk. Uh, I would put them the the Joe Punk and then Gen Next in the same tier, uh, and then right below that, Brian, Nigel, Jimmy Rave, Homicide slash yeah. Prince Nana. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, the, the genius of Gabe is that anytime somebody would leave, no matter whether it was to go to WWE or to TNA full time, or they were just getting out for a break for a while is he always had depth and layers of depth. And I think what Jen next did was it doubled down on that depth that was there. You already had a really great roster, even after losing AJ and Chris Daniels and not being able to truly get that blow off with Punk and Daniels, which I think was really the last thing missing from really just Daniels doing everything other than being the world champion, which beating Joe is not going to happen. So you doubled down. You added the core four of Shelly, Strong, Aries, Jack Evans, and you got two of the best all-around professional wrestlers in the entire independent scene in Aries and Shelly. You had a guy in Roderick Strong who was different and was constantly in a state of growth. And if you look at the group and you say, okay, well, Jack Evans wasn't this well-rounded guy. Jack Evans had more personality than everybody else in the group. Oh, and by the way, also happened to be the best high flyer in wrestling and a generational talent in terms of that high flying skill set. He set the bar the way Amazing Red did for that next group of talent. So, when I think about the legacy of Generation Next, it's very much the same as the legacy of Ring of Honor is Next Man Up. And those four guys, and then eventually Matt Seidel as well, they all came in. They all filled these roles. They all had great matches every single show. You knew what you were going to get. And you had two future ring you know at the time it was one future ring of honor world champion and roddy and another guy who would be a, a future world champion for the second time in austin aries like this group had two world champions including the guy to win the belt for the second time first so you can look at ring of honor and say oh it's the you know samoa joe and cm punk got them through the fine slime scandal but also, like, here's this laundry list of generational talents that all happen to come at the same time and develop equally in unique and individual ways 
not to mention the return of the Briscoes. And they not only filled the void where AJ and Daniels were, they kind of created their own path and the path and destiny of Ring of Honor. So, in I guess in summation of my thoughts, this Generation Next wasn't just some faction that was temporary. It was very much a foundational piece and a foundational piece not just in the product at the time but in my opinion a foundational piece in the the legacy of ring of honor wrestling that still exists in 2023 yeah and uh you know obviously roddy just was a big debut for have that crazy false count anywhere match for uh aew with chris jericho i mean still still in the news all these years later but um after the match, the crowd chants, that was awesome. Big reactions. Uh, clearly the most over thing on the show thus far. Probably still for the whole entire show. They just went nuts for this. Um, Prazak says on commentary that Davey Richards is leading the next generation in Ring of Honor. So going to what we've all said before, like clearly the focus was not on a brand new team, but more on Davey Richards. Everyone on the two teams shake hands. The fans chant, thank you, Gen Next. The winning team leaves, so Gen X can pose on the four turnbuckles and have their moment. Each guy lays their Generation Next shirt in the middle of the ring on top of the Ring of Honor logo. They walk to the entrance where they raise each other's hands and go to the back, at which point the Briscoes run the ring and start spitting on the shirts in the ring and rubbing them on their crotches and butts, which I think I think it's the, like, the most funny heel move of you had all this time to attack them and you wait to the second they leave so you can attack their T-shirts. I think that's such a great, cravenly, like, weaselly heel move. The crowd chants, fuck you, Briscoes. Generation, Generation X runs back out. They chase the Briscoes out of the ring down the aisle where Homicide is waiting for them, taking um, the Briscoes out with chairs, including throwing, throwing one right at Jay Briscoe's fucking head. And Jay starts bleeding badly immediately, which I would guess probably wasn't planned. And so more like accidental, horrific blood on this show. The, you know, he, Jay is screaming, fuck you at Homicide and Generation Next. Aries grabs a mic, says Generation Nexus time has come and gone because they are now the superstars of today. So echoing basically a promo he had done earlier this year. And Dave Meltzer would write in The Observer at the time, they are dropping the Generation Next name, but the group will still be together. Sapolsky felt it was stupid at this point because he gave them the name to indicate that they are rising stars, but that they should. But now that they are on top, they shouldn't be next, quote-unquote, stars. So, yeah, it's, it's mostly a semantics thing, but they won't team together really. That It's going to be mostly just Aries and Strong. But we join Samoa Joe back at the gym. He's doing leg presses, just as he's been doing that all week. Hell, he's been doing that since the day after Brian Danielson clipped him. Joe says he's coming into their match 120%. He says he's ready, he's prepared. The question is, does Brian Danielson realize that? So, just another standard little promo there. And then we go backstage where it's intermission time. Dave Prezak is with Jimmy Jacobs and Lacey. Dave asks Lacey about Jimmy's live performance of his ballad tonight. Lacey's not impressed, especially as Jimmy lost his match tonight. Jimmy, like, very meekly asks her, like, didn't my performance melt your heart just a, just a little bit? And Lacey says, Lacey's Angels is all about winning matches, and that's what Jimmy needs to focus on. Jimmy says he heard some rumors about a car rocking and maybe a Colcaban you. Again, he's very meek here. Lacey says, look, the only thing you need to worry about is winning matches. If you can't do that, 
I'll get rid of them. So it's funny that she still it's funny that she still has the conceit of Lacey's Angels as if it's some group, yeah. As opposed to just she's Jimmy Jacobs's manager. <laughs> like, isn't you know, like isn't Jimmy Jacobs like the only angel that's left? And it has so. been, and no has been for months and months at this point. Yeah, yeah. It should have been just I, Lacey's I Angel. What exactly? I, I yeah. I I want to know what would impress Lacey because. I was impressed by Jimmy Jacobs singing. Also, also Jimmy had won a bunch of matches and did really close in that world title match. So I think she should cut him some slack and say, Jimmy, you've been doing well lately. Oh, yeah. But, and then give him like two thumbs up. And then after the intermission, we get to something I would give two thumbs up. This is something we did not get to see on DVD, but it kind of, it's one of those weird little things I was tickled pink to hear about. So this is a dark match that did not make the DVD. BJ Whitmer defeats a man named Chris Banks. Now people might know him better as a uh, Kalen Croft. He had a uh, developmental WWE developmental developmental deal. In fact, he had it before this match. He got released from it and was working on the Indies. And then later he'd get it again. And then he would later, you know, most prominently get to work a little bit on WWE TV with Trent Beretta as the dude busters as Kalen Croft. Mm-hmm. But he also, even though he, he also was billed temporarily in these indies as under another name, which was Chris Cage. And in fact, guys, the next match on this show was Christian Cage versus Christopher Daniels. So in one of those weird things, not since Ring of Honor temporarily, very briefly booked both Matt Strikers, technically, even though it was not billed this way, we had double Chris Cages. In fact, the Observer would write about this. The next two matches had Chris Cage, the fired WWE wrestler who had spent several years in OVW and got drunk and sick right when he was about to debut on SmackDown as Miz's partner, and he got fired and Miz never got to wrestle. And then that, that match in Ring of Honor was followed by Christian Cage. Dave continues, so Chris Cage, real name Chris Pavone, became Chris Maddox, making his debut, losing to Whitmer quickly. We got an email from Ronnie LaFollette. He he wrote, uh, the BJ Whitmer squash match was cut out of the DVD because the Ring of Honor lighting rig went dark. I watched a panic Gabe walk out and start trying to figure out what was going on. And um, Insert your dark match jokes here. <laughs> yes. And then a yes. PW Torch live report from Rick Carnahan. He wrote, BJ Whitmer defeated Chris K Chris Cage. Slow match. The lights went out halfway through the match. But to their credit, Whitmer and Cage introduced us Chris Banks to avoid confusion. So I'm gonna take that over Dave's thing of Chris Maddox, because we got two reports about Chris Banks being the name. It was it was Chris Banks. Yeah. Wrestled through it until the backup lights kicked on. So Jeff, do you remember anything about a lights out? You got you got a lights out match, a a, a, a I, con special. I remember <laughs> it's better than the next lights out match I would see of Chris Hero and Roderick Strong in Dayton that ended in a DQ. But uh, so, first of all, um, the idea that this this guy was going to be the business tag team partner is. Tremendous. They were going to do like a Spring Breakers tag team. I think and that might have even been the name of the team was the Spring Breakers because they were going to basically be doing the Miz's real world shtick. And this guy, I guess, lived the gimmick just a little too hard. So I knew who he was. And when I saw him during the day when I was in the building, I kind of was I didn't know he had been released or it was just maybe off my my memory banks pardon the pun 
Um, so at the time of this show, I was dating somebody whose last name was Payone, and he introduced himself what I thought was Chris Payone, uh, but Pavone being his last name, uh, it, it just the lights going out. I remember like BJ having this massive smirk on his face <laughs> and just like doing the shrug. You know the the pose that they have RJ City in on YouTube, where he's for his um, his YouTube show, where he's got his arms kind of out to the side and he's just doing like the comedic sitcom shrug. BJ kind of did that, and um, I, I remember there were some hecklers, um, but the match itself never needed to get going there's no need to send bj whitmer out for a match after what he did the night before um i i think maybe four minutes tops for this whole thing um hard with the lights going out and you know bj having just gone through hell 24 hours earlier to really do anything um but you know, Chris Banks or Kalen Croft or Chris Pavone or whatever his name is. Uh, what was the other one? Chris Maddox. Chris Maddox, yeah. yeah Maddox. It seems like uh, he was just a, he was basically just a parody of how many Chris's there were in wrestling at the time. Because he basically <laughs> was like Chris everything at this point. And again, we're, this is immediately pre, before a match with double Chris. So. Yes. Yeah. And, and like he's not, you know, um, I, I don't remember him very much from Ohio Valley, uh, but I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that even if they had had like an eight or nine minute match, you were going to get one of these like matches you needed to write home about. But I'm sure Dave had fun writing about double Chris's and double Christian Chris cages and yeah. all that. Um I just, uh, I think this was a waste. And unfortunately, you know, the lights went out and who knows, Chris, Chris Banks could have turned into something and it could have been born right here in Cleveland, Ohio, but it was not meant to be. And BJ Whitmer got to save his body for one additional match, uh, into the future, which to me is the most important part because God bless BJ Whitmer. What a great man. Absolutely. We we had a little bit of a love letter to him on the last show. And we go from one Chris Cage to the second half of our double night of Christian Cages because we get Christopher Daniels, escorted to the ring by Allison Danger, defeating Christian Cage via pinfall in 13 minutes, 36 seconds after he hit the Angel's Wings. Now, before the match even starts, Christopher Daniels gets on the mic to tell Christian that, well, he doesn't want to sound like a little kid. He's a big fan of everything Christian's done. Daniels likes what he did in WWF slashy. He, that's even how he says it. And this draws, of course, some immediate boos from the RRH fans. Uh, Daniel says when Christian went to TNA, he got excited because it meant he, I'd get a chance to wrestle you. At this point, a random fan decides to chant USA, which gets a great, like, what the fuck reaction from Allison Dangers and Chris, Allison Danger and Christopher Daniels as the crowd quickly shuts down that fan would shut the fuck up. There's going to be a uh, lot of that over the rest of the show, just like a fan yelling something that pisses off the rest of the crowd. Um, yeah. 
the other one thing I'll mention other about what you said. It's interesting to have an ROH crowd in this era that boos WWE and doesn't boo TNA. Very interesting. Yeah, well, this was like the one brief era where TNA was allowing guys, you know, to work Ring of Honor. And we were seeing that Ring of Honor was trying to phase out that relationship. But we were kind of on a if, – if Ring of Honor and TNA were in a relationship, this was like the two months you date each other after you break up where it's doomed to fail. But you kind of are getting a little bit more mileage out of it. That's kind of the era we're in right now. Um, Daniel they're, says – They're in a – it's complicated – or a situation exactly. shift, whatever exactly. the current phrasing is. Um, Christopher Daniels says that he started watching all Christian's matches again. He started studying all Christian's moves, but there's one move he hasn't seen from Christian in a long time, a move that totally reeked of awesomeness. Christian Daniels wants Christian to bring back for one night only the five-second pose. Big pop for that. The crowd really wants to see it. The crowd even starts chanting five-second pose. Uh, Christian jokingly says he'd call Daniels a mark, but that's okay because he's a pretty big mark for himself too. Christian like echoes Daniels' admiration. He's, you know, he talks about, hey, I watched you, you from afar too, but in a totally heterosexual way, he says. Uh, Christian Jen references a baseball game happening down the street, which draws booze. Now, I, he says things I couldn't hear, but then luckily – Mark Engelson in his PW Insider Live report did say what Christian said. So if you didn't, if you don't hear it watching this back, Christian said, according to Mark Engelson, Christian taunted the crowd a bit, although not going full heel, which I would have liked, by telling the crowd that the Cleveland Indians had lost 3-1 and commenting that they haven't been the same since Albert Bell left. So Christian very, twisted very the knife. Very true statements. On, they on lost the to the Reds table. this night. <laughs> and, um, so Christian then teases the five-second pose, which, of course, gets another chant for it. Christian says he doesn't want to disappoint his Cleveland peeps, or as he calls them, his keeps. And he references that, you know, me and you, were Daniels, we're both in great tag teams. I was with Edge, and you're currently with AJ Styles. Christian Styles then calls AJ Styles a bit of a mark for him, too, saying he stole a Christian's hood and his chest slap. So some shots fired here. Uh Christian says he'll play the role of AJ Styles tonight. Daniels can play the role of Christopher Daniels. And Allison Danger can play Sorelda, who, for those who don't know, that was uh, Christopher Daniels and uh, AJ Styles' old uh, female valet. And Daniels and uh, Danger really react well to this, like, oh, what the fuck? And um, so Christian, Daniels, Allison Danger do the five-second pose that Christian bills as the phenomenal angels. And Christian says he doesn't want to hear about WWE anymore tonight because we're in Ring of Honor. He came to ROH to kick some ass so let's do it someone then as the match starts tries to start a we want edge chant which immediately gets booed like not to your point another chant that people are gonna immediately shut down with a shut the fuck up chant christian grabs the mic again just to tell that fan edge banged your mom and uh so that's a lengthy mic segment we get before the match uh matt we'll go to you first this was christian's second and final ring of honor match and obviously Fans at the time, they do not remember Christian's run here. I mean, it's not like it's terrible, but they do not remember it fondly. Revisiting this match after all this time, what do you think about Chris versus Christian? Well, first of all, in that promo work, it was so much TNA stuff, and I think at the time that probably turned me off. I was just like, this is ROH. I don't know why we're like having such a love letter to TNA here. It felt like... You know what it made me? It made it feel like to me. It made ROH in this segment feel like an indie, where it's like the stars are there talking about their real jobs. You know what I mean? 
Um, yeah. You know, like, oh, this, you know, you came to see us because we're in TNA, and so you want to hear about TNA, and you're just you're wrestling fans, so you came to a, a random wrestling show to see the TNA stars. Does that does that make sense to you? Like, am I talking yeah, crazy? and and the. Yeah, yeah, and the Christian thing felt that I think we agreed that it felt a little bit like that in his tag match too, right? Like it kind of felt like visiting star visits your local indie for the night. He kind of puts over the local indie, but in a way that kind of feels like, hey, you know, like I'm giving you my big stamp of approval, you know? Yeah, I think this match was definitely better than what we got at How We Roll for sure. I do think there was a little bit too much for me, like lightheartedness like christian wasn't taking it seriously and so daniel's kind of like dialed down his seriousness too in the first part of the match you know with like the, that's how they roll shtick which they kind of uh, brought back from the first um from the first time they were in the roh match together um you know christian even did a little bit of subtle heel stuff with an eye poke and stuff like that um but you know once they get serious i think it becomes a fairly decent if uncreative match uh, you know, the crowd is into it. You know, it's a much better crowd than you got at How We Roll. So I think that helps. Um, but, you know, it's just fairly basic. You know, we, you know, do some mat wrestling, then we do our big moves, then we have a finisher, a finishing sequence where we both try to do moves and reverse them and escape them. And, you know, I go for the unprettier. You know, I, then you go for the angel's wings. And then eventually Daniel jumps off the middle rope into the angels wings and it's a clean win over Christian, which I actually, you know, even all this time since I, I, I had forgotten and didn't expect. So I thought that was cool. Obviously it makes sense because Daniels is a TNA guy too. So I think TNA was okay with it, but it's still cool of Christian to put Daniels over clean in ROH. I thought that was good, but I, I overall, I thought this was fairly good. I, I, I think definitely think Christian did a better job here than he did the first time, but still, not necessarily what I expect out of an ROH semi-main event. So, Jeff, what did you think? I think it was interesting where, like, we fans in Ring of Honor remember Christian is not having a great two-match little mini-run, and for good reason. But, but like, when you rewatch this match, I, I kind of just remembered, like, the, the online reaction. Like, the fans on this night were pretty into Christian, even though the match is just okay, at least in Matt's opinion, and I'll tip my hat mine. Like, the crowd is reacting to Christian like, hey, we're really glad to see you here. So in this uh, battle of the conquistadors, <laughs> uh, deep cut for those out there listening, the deep vein thrombosos, um, I am not going to sit here and say that this was everything I expected it to be and more. It definitely played back better on DVD you know, 17 years later and, and some change uh, or 16 years and some change uh, later than it did live. Um, I, the the five-second pose thing was great. Uh, I think the five-second pose shtick was hysterical 20 years ago. And it's if they did it on Dynamite or Collision, it would still be funny today. Uh, I'm sure WWE owns the term five second pose, so I guess that's out. Although but, this, uh, this, although if they did it now, this five second pose would involve them holding up a sign insulting someone's dead father while they were posing. But just based on Christian's <laughs> yes. uh, Christian's current gimmick, but yes, it would be an updated version. <laughs> well, he's an evil movie villain now, as opposed to a funny smarmy guy. So 
you know, he needs maybe needs to update it at the time, and it could be like a five-second selfie, and it's just himself in the photo. I don't know. Uh, but I, as far as the match goes, like, it's a good wrestling match. Nothing that happens in this match is something that I would go back and rewatch on my own just to say that I, I, you know, needed to see it again. Um, but it, like I said, it plays back better than it did live where I felt like they were just kind of going through the motions. Um, I think, you know, I hate to use this phrase because it's such a cop out, but a house show match, uh, or a house rules match to use the current vernacular. Um, it, it just wasn't like a must-see, big-time headlining match uh, from Christian. Uh, and I think the world of him, I actually like his work as a single more than I do Edge. Um, and I'm obviously, you know, a huge fan of Chris Daniels. So, yeah, and then that, um, that, I think that's not even at this point, not even really that controversial that Christian is better than Edge. But, you know, at one point it probably was. But I think now that's sort it, of it, people have come around. Yeah, like. In 2006, like I was stoked that Christian was going off to embark in in TNA, and I was really excited to see what he could do there. And I was hopeful Ring of Honor would get a couple of shots with him, and and more than they got. But uh, obviously, that Long Island, how we roll, you know, show that stands the test of time for what it was. And um, you know, here, like it was. Christian was on this show to sell tickets in a market that was not selling tickets. Um, I don't remember how late this match was announced, but I do know that the intent was, Hey, here's a TV star. Let's throw him on the show and see if he helps our market out here. Um, Going up against uh, what I seem to remember being a sold out Cleveland Indians game, uh, against the Reds, um, you know, it's a tough sell for sure. Uh, but they worked hard. I don't think it was like an innovative match or anything. I was excited to see Christian. Um, but again, like this was not the reason to come to this show. The Gen Next tag and what's still to come were the reasons to come to this show. And, uh, this just happened to be on the card. Um, I would say, you know, the finish was certainly way better than I recalled. Um, you know, live versus on DVD. Um, but I think if you're looking for a bad Christopher Daniels match or a bad Christian Cage match, you're going to have to look for a very long time. So it wasn't like this had any chance to be a bad match, quote unquote, but compared to what we've seen so far, it definitely felt lesser than, and that is not to insult Christian or Chris Daniels. So I have to admit, I was like disappointed at the time. I remember at the time I heard this match was booked, not that, 
Christians. I mean, I like. I'm a big. I'm a pretty big fan of Christian. I I know Christopher Dennis is a good wrestler, even if he doesn't always kind of connect with me. But it's just a matter of I thought. Well, there's a bunch of ROH, other other ROH wrestlers I'd rather have seen Christian work. You know, and I was thinking, oh, these guys are in TNA. They could wrestle each other anytime. Now imagine my um surprise when I thought, well. I thought to myself, did they wrestle each other a lot? So I went on cage match. They wrestled each other one time in a singles match in TNA in next year in 2007 on an impact. And that's, this, in fact, this is the first time they wrestle each other ever in a singles match, and which I believe commentary mentions. So in a way, actually, this was kind of like a, a dream match that T- you would think TNA would have ownership of, but they obviously didn't really care that much. But, um, I also think it's interesting that Christopher Daniels is so often put in this position where when they have a big name come to Ring of Honor, Christopher Daniels is one of the first names they reached to because I think they just trust him so much. Like when Great Muda came out for one match, who's he facing off uh, against in a tag? It's Christopher Daniels. When Matt Hardy comes in for only for three matches, who's the first guy he wrestles? It's Christopher Daniels. You know, when Shingo, a young guy from Japan, makes his first match in Ring of Honor, who's he wrestle? Curry man, but you know, uh, spoiler, it's Christopher Daniels. And now when Christian comes in, who's Oops. he facing? <laughs> I, 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 I hate to burst that bubble, but now it's uh, I, know. I, think, I, th- I think you're wrong about that, Trevor, but go on. <laughs> okay. Forever, I, I, might be uh, I, I might be mistaken, but um, but I would say the match these two had here, I would describe as being of Jeff, you said like a house, I would describe this as being like a good. 2006 impact tv match like not the kind of match where after you see you go you tell your friends you have to go watch this if you missed it but like if you were sitting down to watch impact anyway and this came might be like oh that was pretty good for a tv match that much, was fine much, enough. much slower pace than any tna match from that era though and, and um you know it, it's uh i agree i thought this was kind of slow for the few few minutes of matt you mentioned the maybe leaning a bit too much of the comedy and then it picks up the one thing I think this match shares with Christian's other ROH match is to, despite him being the big special guest star, he works the match in such a way that he's kind of like overshadowed by everyone else around him. Like this feels much more like this is Christopher Daniels match, not just him winning, but even in the final minutes, it just feels like Daniels is doing more of his big spots than Christian's only, only pulling out a frog splash. It just feels like more of the focus. Christian's even trying being a bit of a heel here. Like you guys mentioned um, just a little bit, even though the fans, are predisposed to really want to cheer him. And it just feels like, you know, I don't know if that's just Christian being generous or if it's just something natural in his style, or if it's just his, his theory of like, I'm in the Indies, So I should be putting over everyone else because I'm not coming back. And these guys all are, but in both his matches, I felt like he's like, most most outside stars when they get booked in like an indie they're kind of like you know swaggering and taking all the spotlight like christian's kind of doing the opposite i felt in these two matches and like you matt i was even though i had seen this match before i was surprised that christopher daniels was like whoa i didn't remember that like yeah christopher daniels wins and wins completely clean now i guess one thing that might change like you mentioned that they're both tna guys so that makes it easier i think that's probably a big thing but also when Christian worked his first match for ROH, he was the NWA world champion. At this point, he had dropped the title. So that probably frees things up a little bit. Now he's losing. It's not, oh, TNA's champion. It's just a TNA name. Um, but yeah, the thing about Christian in this era is 
we had gotten to the point in Ring of Honor where we wanted to see not just stars, but when the stars came, we wanted them to see them have their A plus 100% working boots on. We wanted to see Kenta Kobashi or the Dragon Gate guys work their asses off. And, you know, that's not necessarily smart for big stars to do. You know, it, it's not smart when wrestlers have limited bumps on their bump card to work their asses off for four or 500 fans at the Cleveland Grays Armory. But yet Ring of Honor was kind of built around that. So I kind of don't blame either side. I don't blame Christian for only working maybe 80% Christian level. And I don't blame fans after the fact who watched this match, Ring of Honor fans, and go, you know what? This isn't what I came to RH for. It's like when a couple breaks up because one wanted kids and one didn't. No one's right or wrong. Like, it's just, you don't sync up properly. But, um... Let me, let me throw this question at you guys. Where, if if not Chris Daniels, because I think Christian coming into Ring of Honor would have been better suited working against a more stable and established heel. Uh, and obviously, you know, taking away Brian and McGinnis and the Gen Next group, is there somebody that maybe aside from Daniels is a more obvious opponent on this show? Well, when you put those parameters in there, it just leaves me with Jimmy Rave. And that's kind of what I'm I'm getting at is I I might have slid Jimmy in here somehow. It would have been better though if uh-huh. Nana was there. Would that would have hurt like that would have hurt that I match agree. for me if the Nana's not there. That's the one thing. Yeah, and and that is exactly where I was going with that. So I'm glad we're on the same page um, because I I do think one of the elements that took away from this was not having like a directive in place of babyface heel fans cheering the guy that was trying to work heel, but kind of half-assing it and then – Daniels obviously being Daniels is going to get cheered. So I, I don't know, like it's a difficult position for ring of honor to be in. Ideally, like this is another place of like call Alex Shelley, get him on the show, like get him to drive down from Detroit. It's two hours. Um, (laughs) and, and put him against Christian, but was not meant to be fun, fun time though. Uh, to see and, Christian on the independents. And then we go to the observer who actually gave in his report here, echoes some things Jeff, you already touched on. Uh, he wrote Christopher Daniels pinned Christian in 1336 in what was described as the kind of match you'd expect the two to have at a TNA house show. So again, like echoing what you said, they did a lot of comedy. Christian's offense is said to look weak on the ring of honor stage as he works safe WWE style while ROH works Japanese style. The idea was to bring him in because Cle- <laughs> The idea was bringing him in because Cleveland is tough to draw in, and he has the WWE name, but it didn't appear that they drew any extra fans to see him. He's real cold right now for a number of reasons. So, ee, but uh, I, I think the idea that, oh, like, I'm sure someone who saw it live sent that report to Dave, but, like, I mean, you could tell he's working a bit different, but, like, I don't think he looked way weak. Like in his offense no. compared to this idea that, oh, it's a world away. I, I don't think I don't agree with that. But yeah, it is like, well, and it's again, it's not the pro wrestling Noah style. So yeah. uh, I guess. But there are a lot of guys in ROH who aren't working. Jimmy Jacobs isn't working the pro wrestling Noah style. You know, there's a lot of guys we can name, but that are beloved Ring of Honor regulars. But 
Yeah, and then again, he touches on the point you made, which is, you know, this was Christian, you know, their swing to try and draw fans to a market they were trying to bolster. And according to Dave and according to just the quoted numbers, it didn't appear to draw that much different. But, and obviously, I mean, Christian's never brought back. So I have to assume they assumed, hey, this is a kind of a failed experiment. But either way, Yep. We then get a segment that we did not see on the show probably because they decide after this match, eh, maybe we don't need to book Christian again. But PW Insider live report from Mark Engelson. He writes, after the match, Daniels got on the mic with and praised Christian, telling him he's welcome anytime in ROH and that he'd love to work with him again, tag with him, even special referee for him. Daniels seemed to want to shake hands, but it looked like Christian may have just forgotten the handshake when he left. So I think that, I would have liked to have seen that, but that's the, that's the, the swang song for Christian in Ring of Honor. Um, and I have to imagine again, they probably cut that out of the DVD because they're like, well, if Christian isn't coming back, no, no reason to tease that he might be. Um, and I, we should also, so, know this, oh, go on. I, I just want to give one quick story. So I, I met and took a picture with Christian on this show. Um, super nice guy. Uh, and just, very uh personable with his time but when i shook his hand uh and this was something i had forgotten about until my aew time uh when he came in he has massive hands for a guy his size oh yeah i was gonna point that out when they were doing the knuckle lock in the match i was like abnormally large hands yeah when they were doing the knuckle lock i was like man Christian's hands makes da- makes Daniel's hands look like baby hands. Like it was like, wow, that guy has big yeah. ass hands. Uh, yeah, it's it's very weird. I thought you were gonna say um, like his I, hands. I thought you were gonna say like his hands were like sticky or something. <laughs> no, oh, no, he had he had very a uh, very firm handshake, and he smelled very nice. Um, <laughs> in spite of the Cleveland Gray's armory and its <laughs> ventilation or lack thereof. But he had massive, massive hands. I felt like what the Burger King guy looked like on the commercials with the tiny hands <laughs> shaking his hand. There are so many like WWE wrestlers that must like just have bemoaned working WWE because they'd be like, in any other stat- place in my life, everyone would be going, what a big honked person this is. And WWE, there are so many guys I feel like to have that story where it's like you don't realize how big this person is till you see them away from WWE. Like, who would guess that Christian has giant hands? It wasn't so much the vertical thing. Like, you know, he didn't feel like a Billy Gunn type where you're just like, oh, my God, that that is a massive, massive human being. And he doesn't look that way on TV. Um, Like, I I was fairly recently with Dennis Knight and Mark Canterbury, um, the, the Godwins. They are big human beings. Billy yeah. Gunn is ten times their size. Oh, and shit. like Christian has bigger hands than every single one of them. <laughs> it, it's it's almost like a circus act. Sorry, Christian, if you're ever going to listen to this, I don't mean to call you a circus act, but his hands are huge. You're gonna turn Christian into that guy from the Simpsons who was like, I'm tired of people making fun of my giant hands. It all started. And like, he reads this giant note that's written on his hand. (laughs) (laughs) The, the only person I have ever shook hands with, with larger hands than Christian is Jaleel Okafor. 
And I'm sure you guys have no idea who that is, but he was a top three NBA draft pick from Duke uh, in the 2016 NBA draft. And he no longer plays in the NBA. He had a very short career, but he had hands that could go around a basketball and touch fingers. They should do um, that. First of all, that's fucking insane. <laughs> but um, the um, they should do that gimmick that um, Andre the Giant used to do, where he would put his hands on people's faces to show how big his hands were. <laughs> mm-hmm. They should have Christian doing that now. <laughs> I, I was Christian, yes, the giant handed, the giant handed, well dressed, mean wrestler. <laughs> I was just going to say that you know WWE keeps talking about they want to build a physical hall of fame and i think they have like a handprint of andre the giant i was thinking after this conversation they should have like a christian handprint right next to they it should. just like and just like a science is pretty not not andre but pretty good right like just just like inexplicably just like hey here's here's the here's the wall of hands and christian, christian that, cage a good hand yeah. also large hands <laughs> Sean Spears handprint next to them. Like this, yes. this has a different meaning, you know, but, um, the other thing I wanted to, I forgot to mention is that we should note that the Christian Dan, Daniels match is the one match on the show where the lights are more than flickering. I guess the one match that made the DVD is uh, the, clearly they had not completely fixed the lights from the Chris cage match. And, uh, the lights almost look a kind of not quite, but kind of like the House of Rule, the the how the House of Black trios lights. Like it was kind of lit, but kind of only kind of. But luckily, by the main event, we're back to full lighting, and the main event is our final match. Here is the Ring of Honor World Title match. Brian Danielson successfully defends the title, defeating Nigel McGuinness via pinfall in 24 minutes 27 seconds with a small package after he crawled under the ring. Came back out on the other side, surprised Nigel with, you know, that surprising small package surprises the best of us. Um, Jeff, you know, you should uh, get to go first. This was a rematch of a match, you know, these two had last time they were in Cleveland, a match uh, we really loved. What would you think about this one? I love this one more. Um, I... I when I think about the great wrestling matches that I've seen in Cleveland in my lifetime, uh, I think the best match in the history of Cleveland is probably this match. I think the first match was the second best, and I hate throwing a ladder match into you know a rankings list because it's a totally different universe but cody and sammy's ladder match on dynamite from january of 2022 i think is probably the third was that hardy's Um, that first hardy's edging christian ladder match also in cleveland yes uh in uh the gund arena uh no mercy 99 i I would have been there um there was a jeff hardy rvd uh, maybe it wasn't a ladder match, but the, they had the, a ladder The hardcore involved. match at Invasion, right? The hardcore title yes. match? Yes, yes. Yeah, same, the, la- the, same ladder ma- the ladder match was the rematch at SummerSlam, and was it nearly as good? Yeah. Um, and, 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 like, obviously, you know, I've not been to every wrestling show in Cleveland, but this is the kind of wrestling match that if I had to tell you without using words but just show you what i love about wrestling 
this is the the match I probably other than Joe Kobashi. If I had to say what I love about great Cleveland wrestling matches, it would be this one. Um, I, these guys are perfect opponents. They they are just so in contact with one another mentally in this match. Um, I love everything about this match. Um, it's it's it, it made me emotional watching it back. Uh, the other day, because when I think about Nigel and just how much different his legacy could have been without the concussions and the, the torn biceps and where Brian is today, as we talked about earlier, how authentic he was and is, um, these two guys just anytime they're mentioned in the same breath, it means so much because I think of the two Cleveland matches, obviously the unified match. I think we would all agree is one of the greatest matches in ROH history. And this just happens to be another great match in ROH's history of many, many great matches, but the viciousness that you see in this, it felt, real in the moment and you couldn't help but get sucked in and then you know as you're getting sucked in more and more in this match you start thinking like okay maybe we're gonna get a title change here like the unified match had not been announced or confirmed it had been rumored but you know the idea of putting the title on Nigel certainly was not a stretch by this point. Um, I I just thought I would say right around the time uh, Nigel hit a Tower of London and got a two count and then went right to a Kimura, uh, which probably was at like the 15, 16 minute mark of the match. Um that was when I started thinking, they're going to change the fucking Ring of Honor title in Cleveland. Oh, my God. And then Brian to come in with the small package playing off the finish of being on the floor from the previous match. It's just such a brilliantly wrestled, smart, intelligent match where both guys raise each other's games at the same time and they feel like equals they are main event stars in the ring of honor universe which is a universe of just one wrestling promotion these are your two top guys and this match just reinforced the point that this is guy number one and this is guy number one here but british There's not much more to say. I I will, when we get into the Mr. Small Package thing, I'll tell you guys a story about that um, and who actually was the original Mr. Small Package. But uh, I love this match. I think it's. Well, it definitely wasn't Christian based on what we've been talking about. He was not the original Mr. (laughs) Small Package. I don't know if hands equate to that. Um, (laughs) I didn't inspect that part. I just shook his hand and said, I appreciate you. You're a great wrestler. Um, 
<laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, this is just such a just smart wrestling match. And man, like having this in the previous match in the same building with the kind of heat and the energy of the crowd, this was the best, the best match for the crowd too, uh, in terms of how they reacted. So complete full, for lack of a better term, full package here. Um, beautiful, just beautiful. So, I'm glad I, I put in my head like that Matt would be third for this match because this is going to be one of those matches where Matt's going to have to be the tiebreaker because the, I love the last match of Cleveland. I did not think this was better than their last match of Cleveland. I liked, I loved their last match. I liked this one. Um, when I was done watching this match, I actually went back and I looked up my notes for the previous match and I was struck by how many thoughts, how many of my thoughts for that match were like the complete opposite of my thoughts for this match. Like, their first match in Cleveland, it starts – both of them, that match and this match, they start with a ton of mat work. The whole first half of both matches is grappling. But in the first match, partially due to the pure rules and partially due to how they worked it, I felt like all that mat work felt like a real struggle, like like a real battle to see who's the better wrestler here. They were trying really hard to not even use rope breaks in that first match. It was just different and compelling to the point where I felt like halfway through that match, I felt like before we even got to the quote-unquote good stuff, it still felt more like a more substantial meal of a match than a lot of wrestling matches. This match... I didn't feel that way. I felt like the first half, a lot of grappling, really well done grappling, but it felt like the grappling in so many matches where it's done well enough, it's entertaining, it doesn't really stand out or build a story or have like a real distinct identity. It's just two really great grapplers having some fun grappling for a while. And then it does feel like when we get to the start of the halfway through, when they start doing more impact moves, Oh, now the meat of the match is beginning. In fact, at one point on commentary in this match, Prezak starts talking about the methodical pace of the match, which is usually him just trying to tell you like, Hey, be patient. And then he, he tells us in classic ROH fashion, expect a long match, which actually means the opposite because by Brian Danielson, ROH, title defense standards this is like shorter because usually often will go 30 minutes so that classic ring of honor if they tell you something expect the opposite thing now the second half of the match it transitions from the pure mat work to like bigger stuff pretty quickly and it's good stuff these guys are great and even like what i would say is their lesser work against each other is better than most other wrestlers good stuff and one part and one part of this match i would say that really stood out to me it made me think of of all things Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat from WrestleMania 3. So for those that maybe are a little young and make me feel old, the whole point of that match, you know, that Savage and Steamboat WrestleMania 3 is considered like one of the great matches of that era, certainly at least for WWF. And one thing about that match is it was laid out move for move. They've talked about that to the point where I think the Savage even had them number the move so they could like quiz each other and be like, what's move 17? Oh, that's where you arm drag me. And, um, I remember this interview Steamboat did, and he talked about that match, and he said that match was like a greatest hits of all our house show matches before WrestleMania 3. Like, we said, hey, remember that movie you did in, like, Cleveland? Okay, well, how about you do that? But then later we do, we we mix that with the counter I did to you, you know, in New York this time and all this stuff. And it was basically they just took their best ideas and, like, made a compilation, and that's what WrestleMania 3 was for them. And it, it kind of reminded me, that a lot of wrestlers, like, their best match against each other, if they've wrestled a bunch of times, is actually probably, like, a greatest hit. It's the wrestlers going, remember that thing you did here? Let's mix it with the thing you did here and the thing I did here. And in this match, 
I feel like you kind of see that because the match everyone remembers these two having most, I would say, is their UK match that happens in three shows down the line. But yet there are elements of that, and people don't really remember this match, but yet there are elements of that match in this match, like the headbutt stuff that people went, oh my god, the brutal headbutts, they're, you know, this is not good for wrestling. They do it here first, but people don't remember that mm-hmm. because it's not as prominent a match, but they do that idea here first. Or like Matt, we've talked about how one of the big surprises we got doing through the years was realizing that that crazy spot in the UK match that we'll get to where Nigel gets his head rammed into against a ring post until his head bursts open bleeding hard way. He did that in a random match in 2004. You know, like you realize, oh, this UK match, it's like they're coming up with ideas in all these other matches. And the UK match is like their WrestleMania 3. It's, oh, let's put all these ideas together. And like, so in this match, what I was most interested on is just seeing like, oh, in the second half of this match, they start getting a lot stiffer than they were in the last Cleveland match. You know, uh, to me, the two biggest highlights of this match are just the brutal clotheslines he hits Danielson with. They're like, for people that think that clotheslines can't be like major moves. The, watch the clotheslines in this match. They feel like like D- Nigel swinging a bat at Danielson, like that turnaround clothesline where he turns around the last second. Just brutal clotheslines, and, and I, I could I could imagine them watching working this match, and then when they have to go back to the UK, realizing like, oh, in that second half where we really just started beating the living shit out of each other, like we really hit on something. Like, how about we just you know dwell deeper more on that in the next match and i feel like that's one of the most interesting things this match is kind of like the birth in my opinion of a better match um i i still thought this was very good bordering on great i, I enjoyed it a lot you know these two even their lesser matches i still think are really good but i thought because of that first half this is much that's more interesting for what they find than what the whole package is but matt what do you think? You probably think I'm crazy. Well, I'm, I, I would say I'm in between both of you because I didn't think it was. I didn't like it as much as the first match, but I do think it was a great match. Like easily, um, I think you hit on a lot of important points, Trevor. But I think you're underselling the story uh, a little bit in terms of like, yeah, they do do the headbutts first here, and not only do they bring those back in the UK match, that becomes one of the long running trends of their matches that they have for the next two years. Um, it ties into so many different storylines and, you know, for better or for worse, because at one point, like in a really kind of, when they're doing the headbutts, it kind of upsets me to hear Jared David say both men are trying to cause as much brain damage as possible because they do, <laughs> you know, at least over years they do. I mean, we know Brian Danielson's history with concussions. We know Nigel McGuinness has a history with concussions and it's kind of like, this kind of morbid but really important moment for them. It's kind of a watershed moment where they find this thing that they do with each other. The other really important thing about this match is, you know, you mentioned the clotheslines. Well, I've been waiting to figure out, okay, when is the moment where Nigel quote-unquote levels up to becoming main event Nigel? And he's been doing it gradually throughout 2006. I really feel like this is the match where it's like, okay, this is him. He doesn't do anything smarmy or heelish in this match at all, unless I'm forgetting something. Uh, do you remember no. anything, Trevor? Like where he acts really? I don't, like I don't remember anything. Yeah, he just—he's the. I mean, he crotches Brian on the top rope for the, the Tower of London. That's it. Yeah, but I mean that—that's pretty much a, a standard thing anyone would do, and he keeps doing that even as huh? a face. So they even do a handshake after the match. So like they yeah. don't do like the heel. I'm gonna be a bad sport, and that'll build. It's more just like. Yeah. 
no, like, you beat me, I want a rematch. Yeah, and so this is when Nigel just becomes like, okay, I am not going to be that smarmy guy, I'm Lariat Man now. And that becomes who he is now for the next, you know, years, for many years, until he basically is done wrestling. Lariats are his thing, and he is one of the most vicious throwers of them in wrestling to the point where they become finishers. I mean, the Lariat had never really been his finisher previously. He had been doing them more, but had never been his finisher. But that rebound Lariat got an incredible near-fall pop, right? Like, it was, mm-hmm. like, the crowd yeah. started buying that at that point. And it's because he really, and then the the top rope Lariat, just, like, the way they got into that was amazing. The turnaround Larry. I mean, it just, this is the ma- the moment where Nigel McGuinness became the Nigel McGuinness that became the legend. You know, I mean, he was great before, but this is, this is the moment. And I think that's what elevates this match. I think the first match had, you know, it was just, there was, there was something about it. There was more creativity. I think it was more, um, dynamic the whole time. And I agree with you, Trevor, that the first half, you know, I think some could maybe criticize that the, um, the limb work didn't totally play into the finish. Um, but I did, I do think it's a pleasure watching those two bat wrestle. Oh, it still was. Yeah. Like, I just thought that the bar was so high from that first match. I thought in the mat work. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it was, but I think that this match was so fun to watch from beginning to end. The only part that makes me feel uncomfortable is those headbutts because we know where they led. Um, but I still, I, I think this match is only if I if I put this match below the first one, it's only a little bit. Like I think these are both two fan, uh, fantastic matches, and I um, it's interesting. You know, we always talk about how through the years we uh, somehow stumble onto things that are very timely. There is a lot of talk about Nigel McGuinness and Brian Danielson and the words they've exchanged for each other in kayfabe terms. Who the hell knows what's going to happen over the next few months? But the story might not be done being written. And, um, yeah, I thought this was a, a great match, a great main event. Apparently on the ring of honor TV this week, which I haven't seen the commentators talked about Nigel couldn't be there this week cause he's bulking up. So combine so it, that. Yeah, with- yeah, it seems, I mean, listen, we don't know. No one, no one's told us anything. Seems pretty clear. Like he's planning on wrestling again. That's what yeah, it seems I mean, like. <laughs> I mean, look, I'll, I'll say this. If, if Nigel and Brian are not wrestling at all in in Wembley Stadium, Brian Danielson was kind of an asshole at that last press conference because he went in hard on Nigel McGuinness when they asked about him. Like th- that felt super in character to me. But if they don't wrestle, then I'm going to look at that a different way. It doesn't, ne- doesn't, really... ne- doesn't necessarily have to be at all in, but yeah. It, yeah. yeah. Um, well, if they I can mean... find a building in Cleveland to run, they can run it back here. Uh... <laughs> Build, fit, end the trilogy. It, but think about yeah, this. Think about I mean, this, guys. It is conceivable that in at a giant st- stadium show in 2023, we may be watching uh, Brian Danielson versus Nigel McGuinness and CM Punk versus Samoa Joe. It's conceivable. Like two and a half months out, it seems plausible that that could happen. So bizarre. And the idea that the, the first Ring of Honor show in the UK had them and the first AEW show in the UK might have them. It. it it's just I I don't really even have the words to like I know this is not a video podcast but like the goosebumps on my arm are are raising like just thinking about it you know all these years later like it, it, think about it. like this show took place in two thousand six almost seventeen years ago 
Well, think about the think last. About, think about this one. If they do, if they do Punk and Joe at All In, it wouldn't exactly, but almost to the week, maybe like one week more, it would be twenty years since their first ROH match with each other, I, which might have been their first match with each enemies. other. I'm not sure. Like, so that's it fucking was. crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it just the 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 age thing in wrestling is no longer like you know i wwf wanted to phase um hogan out and he was like 38 or 39 or whatever it was in 93 uh because he was old and over the hill and then they did those you know billionaire ted skits and these guys now are all north of 40 and i would argue that i would argue that Christian Cage, CM Punk, Brian Danielson, and Nigel McGuinness are all more handsome now than they were <laughs> in 2006. Partially because of 2006 trends and styles. You know, Nigel McGuinness has a more normal haircut. Christian Cage doesn't have that weird 2006 goatee, which I also had and I'm embarrassed about. Um, yeah, but, so did I. Yeah, but I. Um, but yeah, so listen, these guys are aging well in a lot of ways. So. How about Roddy? How yeah. about Roddy Strong? Yeah, he looks great too. His life. He looks great too. Yeah, yeah, that, that guy is is crazy. Um, Matt, I also wanted to add one thing you mentioned, and I'm glad you brought up that that Jared David commentary bit about they're trying to give each other brain damage. It, it's one of those things where it really dates this match in a way because I feel like just not very long later in a post Benoit world, like no commentator, like that was a line that was not abnormal in wrestling in this era. And that's a line that just months later, I don't think any commentator that was reasonably like em- empathetic would consciously use that kind of line ever again. Like right. it's a, we're, we're at a very weird time in this wrestling where we still have the idea where we know brain damage is bad, but we don't know a lot of wrestling fans still haven't really thought like what CTE can do to someone like the dementia, the, the, the insane problems, but the quite literally, but, um, on that downer note, I'll also say, I like, I love the finish. I, I love that Nigel's always tricking guys with these kind of cheap, but kind of ingenious things. And I love that Danielson here, he wins by literally crawling out under, under the ring and then surprising Nigel with a small package. I and think and that's the really second finish in a row on the show that like really surprised me all these years later. I was like, oh wow, like that finish was, it was awesome. Like it was such a shocker. So that's another one. So after the match, um, Danielson offers a handshake. Nigel teases leaving without one, but he does eventually do, does it. So again, not really leaning into heel, like to Matt's point, not leaning into the heel thing at all, really at all. Um, Brian has Bobby Cruz announce him as Mr. Small Package Brian Danielson. So even though I believe Danielson might have won with a small package before this, this is where he's starting the push. He wants this to be a thing. Mr. Small Package Brian Danielson. And uh, – Next, we go backstage to the Ring of Honor Tag well, Team Champ. Well, Trevor, not to cut you off. Well, of course. Uh, Mr. Small Package originally was a Mitch Franklin thing. Wow. Uh, he was going to be Mr. Small Package and win all of his matches with small packages. Brian aped it and ran with it. Did Mitch feel okay with that? Yes. More than happy. <laughs> Good. Yeah, that because that, that is like a that is an interesting little gimmick, you know. But it's, it's I I did not know that. Wow, that he literally like lifted it from a student, huh? And that, I I don't believe there was like any sort of you know 
uh, misguided, like I'm going to bully the student and take his phrase and nickname. It just happened to be a happy accident. Yeah. And yeah. So Mr. Small Package. I feel like he at least owes him a pizza. Like you at least got to buy him a pizza for that. I mean, they had many, many eating, eating contests. Yes. (laughs) Vegan pizza. So, uh, uh, a cauliflower pizza. (laughs) Oh God. They they, they actually do have some vegan pizza places here in uh, Brooklyn. It's uh, screamers pizza has been around for a while. Fairly well regarded in that vein. I'm going to to ask my cousin Jackson about that place because he was mentioning a couple of vegan spots in Brooklyn. He lives out there. Um, so uh, I'll have to see what he recommends next time I'm in that neck of the woods visiting. So uh, next we go backstage to the Ring of Honor Tag Team Champions, Austin Aries, Roderick Strong. Ronnie can't believe that the Briscoes attacked them t- again tonight, but Aries says, you know, don't worry about it. We have bigger things to worry about tonight. Aries gives props to the team that beat them in the eight-man tag tonight before mentioning that at the next Ring of Honor double shot, they'll be defending the titles in ultimate endurance matches on each night, which means, as a result, they're going to have to end up facing six tag teams in two nights. Aries says they're going to prove to everyone that isn't already a believer quite yet that they're the best tag team in wrestling, and these are the best tag team belts in wrestling. Roddy points out that they're world tag team belts now, since they just recently defended them in Japan. And Aries says because of that, they'll be having an open contract after their two ultimate endurance matches. So, you know, building up a bit of they're going to be facing people in uh, the UK, some people from out of country, but... Next, we go back to Samoa In our final segment, we go back to Samoa Joe at the gym. He's doing cardio now. Joe mocks Danielson for climbing under rings and relying on trickery to get by in the main event. Uh, Joe says, so I love that the idea in theory, I guess you could say maybe Joe is just being told by someone what's happening in the, in the match, because otherwise you'd have to assume that Joe has like a live feed of a ring of show, which obviously could not be possible. So Joe says, um, you know, hey, you have to climb under rings, you rely on trickery to get by. Joe says, a champion doesn't use tricks, and when they wrestle, he'll remind Brian what it is to be a champion. Because when Danielson wakes up after Joe chokes him out, he'll be staring at one. Which I thought, I wrote my notes, that's a great line, and probably the greatest wrestling line ever delivered by someone while they were using an elliptical machine. So, um <laughs> Yeah, th- I thought that was Joe's th- most, eff- most effective work of the night, like a good little one line there. And uh, that is the show. That is uh, Generation Now. Um, Jeff, what did you think about the show? I mean, revisiting it, you were there live, so, I mean, you have the dual perspective. So I think this is a show that, speaks to why ring of honor meant so much to me um it's a little something of every flavor of the wrestling ice cream palette um i don't think anything outside of brian and nigel on this show is like an all-time classic or something that will age uh, appropriately um i uh, there are matches I really liked. Uh, Cabana and Ace against Jimmy and Sal, I think, is a really, really fun match. Uh, but, you know, that's more just kind of a, a combination of some of my favorites having a tag match on the show. Uh, the Jimmy Jacobs live Ballad of Lacey entrance was awesome. Uh, the 
Gen Next uh, versus Team Davey tag. Um, at the time, it was, you know, uh, one of the more wild, high-flying matches I had ever seen, and certainly nothing had been anything like that uh, outside of maybe that six-man mayhem on the, the January show. Uh, but even that wasn't, you know, uh, like a lifetime changing your perception of wrestling match. It was just six random guys, five random guys and Jimmy Yang. Um, I, I think this show will go down as being the night Nigel truly cemented his spot as a main event guy. Uh, and it, is a night that just reinforces my overarching point of Gen Next and their legacy in that the roster depth that Gabe was able to create in Ring of Honor, you know, between 2004, 2005, 2006, and into 07, there's never going to be a roster like that in independent wrestling ever again. There's just no way to have that kind of insane depth to go from a Joe, a punk, punk leaves and, oh, you replace him with all time great Nigel McGuinness or all time great Brian Danielson, who might be the greatest of all time. Then Samoa Joe leaves and then Nigel steps up. Uh, you have a former champion in there in Austin Aries. Uh, there's just this this show, while not being a all-time great Ring of Honor show, is more appropriate to the heart of Ring of Honor. It's a little something for everybody. And I'm proud of the show being in Cleveland, um, even though the attendance was not what I would have liked it to be or what I felt this card deserved. Um, I say thumbs up, solid yet unspectacular to pretty much everything on the show, and uh, you can't have a better main event. Um, you just can't. That that was incredible, and it, it ages so beautifully, um, in spite of the very uncomfortable headbutts. Matt, what'd you think about it? Um, I, I like what Jeff said about how like this Matt, this show sort of like a tribute to the heart of Ring of Honor because I do think between the Generation Next match and the main event, I do think there's a, there's a lot of to reminisce about or just feel good about when it comes to what you liked about ROH, and then of course there is the uh, the kind of the dark underbelly of what those headbutts wrought on uh, on those two on those two guys, and also um, you know other aspects of wrestling, but. Overall, I would say, yeah, like not the best show we've seen so far, but like a, I think a really solid, like classic in the sense of like it had some variety. They went back to basics in terms of like this was a wrestling show instead of a show built around a hardcore feud. Um, and I thought a really, a, gr- a great mid show, you know, first half main event and a great main event. I think make it a uh, a thumbs up show, even if the uh, most of the undercard was not particularly memorable. Yeah, I agree with both you guys. Thumbs up for me because of the variety 
And yeah, it was a show that one of those, I, I would call both halves of this week and this and War of the Wire 2, like these were like B plus like shows, even though these were considered B markets at this time. I consider these like B plus shows because they had some things of importance on both shows and things that just made them stick out and yeah, I don't know if there was that one match of the year consideration match that Ring of Honor's kind of found on, but you don't have to have those on every show for them to be good shows. And the fact that you have a show that, you know, has this kind of depth with Homicide only working like a random nine-minute match and Samoa Joe on the show is a testament to the depth of the promotion at this time. It's amazing and- this this far into the year of 2006 how rare it is for us to say a show is any less than good. It's crazy how consistent they were at this point. Like, just it's just yeah. crazy. It's why they were one of the best federations of their generation. This is like right in the meat, the middle of like their peak era. So yeah, they're just on all cylinders right now. Even their lesser shows are pretty darn good, and I think this was better than just a lesser show. This is right in the middle, pretty good. And um, that brings us to the end of the show. So it is time for plugs. Jeff, you have the floor. What would you like to plug, sir? So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this will drop Sunday, June fourth ish. I, I honestly, I'm I'm usually post it as soon as I can. So I'm hoping it'll be up before I go to bed tonight, which is uh, June second. So probably either right before midnight Eastern on June second, or right after midnight Eastern on June third. Okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna plug my Twitter page and then I'll mention something about June 4th and why it's an important date. Um, you can find me on Twitter for now at Mr. Jeff Schwartz Zero. Um, till I get a blue sky, uh, I will be on Twitter following Trevor and Matt. Um, but on June 4th, you can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, just search Jeff Schwartz and, the Twitter handle and Instagram handle are the same at an honorable pod at code of honor book. Um, those are all important as well to give those follows on, on Twitter. Um, but June 4th is the most important thing. And this year is the four year anniversary on June 4th of the murder of my friend, Carnell sledge and his friend, Kate Brown. And it is an unsolved murder. Uh, it occurred in the Rocky River Reservation in downtown Cleveland, um, very close to where this building is located. Um, it is a case wrought with horrible police work from the Metro Parks Police Department. Uh, the FBI is involved and has done, as far as I'm aware, absolutely nothing in terms of progress. There is a $100,000 reward. And just so you guys listening and, and gals listening uh, know a little bit about Carnell, um, I was not familiar with Kate. Uh, she was Carnell's friend, but Carnell was a special education teacher and only 40 years old and one of the kindest, most lighthearted souls I have ever met in my 37 years on this planet and going on four years without him because of someone's lost temper or, you know, uh, whatever the reason may be, there is no justification. Um, so if anybody knows anything, uh, 
please contact uh, Crime Stoppers of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, you can find them on social media. You can contact the FBI, fbi.gov. If you know anything about the murders of Carnell Sledge and Kate Brown, June 4th, 2019, between 5.04 and 5.13 p.m., it was a Thursday. Uh, they were murdered right under the Lorraine Road Bridge, uh, very close to the Gray's Armory. And uh, I miss my friend a lot. And hopefully, uh, as we cross paths with the four-year anniversary, uh, somebody, you know, gets some justice. There are some projects involved for the fall uh, that I'm a part of uh, that can be seen nationally. Uh, more on that once we get things on tape. But uh, that's all I want to plug is uh, let's get justice for my friend Carnell and, and his family and Kate and her friends and her family. Yeah, um, I don't think we will ever have a more noble plug on this show than that. And I know a little bit about how helpless you can feel in things, situations like this, where, you know, someone has an answer to something. And yeah, uh, so if and, anyone go get paid for it, go get one hundred thousand dollars. Who doesn't yeah. need one hundred grand? Yeah, obviously, like, you know, if anyone has any information ever, anyone happens to listen to this, you know. You, you can get the best of both worlds, but uh, our far list noble plugs, as always, through the years at gmail.com. If you want to contact us, that's T H R O H for through at Trevor Dame on Twitter at Mayor M G F on Twitter for Matt. Next time on the show, we will be starting a new double shot as we are on the march to the UK, both in real life uh, with uh, AEW shows and in uh, ROH, because we're only two shows away from a, a, um, ROH going to the UK. We'll be covering Time to Man Up, which is going to be a real interesting card. Jack Evans and Brian Danielson again. Plus, we get Briscoes versus Kenta and Davey Richards, a whole bunch of other stuff. That should be a really interesting show. So until then, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.